0: I'm a music fan and the way that, that I feel music is like that I feel that those big huge rushes of emotion and, and slabs of and I like good melodies you know and I like good tunes and I like choruses that, that sound like choruses
1: I mean as a musician it's a great band to play in it
0: really is
2: now we have these who know?
0: said you were a musician Mr Drummer <laughs> <laughs> well, I hang around with them you know what I try and do <laughs> <laughs> sorry Mark
3: All right, everyone, we are back. Welcome to episode 53 of The Great Divide Podcast. This is Tom coming to, coming to you from America, along with our illustrious co-host, Svein. Introduce yourself, if you would.
2: Yes. Hello. My name is still Svein, and I'm coming to you from Norway, <laughs> which is probably just as shocking as Tom being in America, but we made it through to the new year. <laughs> Happy New Year, Tom.
3: Happy New Year, Svein. Happy New Year, everyone out there. Yeah, yes. and we've got a we've got a very special episode of the Great Divide today. We tried this once before; it was it was very well received for the Steeltown album. We're going to try it again today, and we'll see how it goes. It's kind of what we said before the last one, and we'll say that again here. We'll just see what happens. But we are trying to do another roundtable discussion for the Buffalo Skinner's album, and we've got some guests with us right now, and we've got one who is attempting to be with us. He's trying to find higher ground, actually, so th- this is kind of the drama that we're going to have throughout the show, and that th- that guy is named Jason Allen. Some of you might remember Jason from uh, the past in big country lore because he is a co-founder of the Inwards fanzine, which I personally loved. Um, did you ever read that one's fine? I'm sure you did.
2: Yeah, four issues, right?
3: Yeah, there were only four issues, but they were yeah. four, four damn good ones.
2: Yeah, I thought there were more. So uh, a little, little disappointed there, Jason, but uh, there's always time for a comeback.
3: There might, you know, there might have been more. We'll ask him when we, if we get him on, yeah. but um, I know there are only four up on John's page, so there's probably just four.
2: Yeah, but, I uh, take that as gospel.
3: Yeah, that's got to be gospel. <laughs> but yeah, we've got two other uh, esteemed guests who are with us right now, and uh, one you've heard before on our show, and that is the famed Tim Eldred from California, who spearheaded the A Certain Chemistry audiobook. And Tim, welcome back. Greetings, Pop Pickers. <laughs> nice to have you here with us again. And nice to be here. Yeah, it's great. And we've nice got, to be anywhere, actually. It is. It's nice to be anywhere at our ages, our combined ages. But uh, we've got another guest here that we're really excited about because she's going to bring a whole new different perspective from the typical uh, old geezer talk
4: and oh, the- <laughs> you guys are fine. <laughs>
3: and welcome, Kara. Kara Kuli, right? Yep. Is that- okay, good. Kara, how are you doing?
4: I'm doing well. I'm super excited to be here. I've been pumped all week.
3: <laughs> We're excited to have you here. I'm not kidding. It's great that there are younger people. Kara's uh, 21. She, hopefully you don't mind me saying that to everyone.
4: No, 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 that's fine. All
3: right, good. Kara's 21. So... um she's going to have a really interesting perspective. And it's great that younger people are so into big country and discovering big country still. And I think that, in a way, reflects back on what we say a lot on the show is kind of the timeless quality of the band's music. So, I mean, Jason's going to hopefully be joining us at some future point. But let's just go with uh, what we were talking about a little bit off air. And I want to kind of get a feel for your guys' short, uh, I guess, big country elevator story, you know, that, that short blurb about how you Got interested in big country, so Kara, let me start with you. I mean, when did you discover big country and uh give me a little bit of your your big country fan history
4: sure, so I guess it all started. I want to say two thousand late two thousand five early two thousand six uh there was a big country uh well in a big country was on a car commercial in America around that time oh yeah uh so that caused I have three sisters. And the second oldest one, for some reason, liked this song. And she, we have a local library that has a lot of CDs. So she checked out the CD. And so it was The Crossing. Well, as everybody knows, it's The Crossing. So she checked out The Crossing. We had a family computer at that time because I was only in sixth grade, I guess. I was around 11. And she left it by the family computer. And I guess I was bored one day and I just popped it in. I started listening to it and I was hooked. I mean, from there it took a while. Basically, I thank YouTube for getting me really, really in the big country because I didn't know much about them. So I just looked up songs on YouTube while I was online, and I liked them so much that the next Christmas I decided my aunt, my aunt was the only one who really bought things online at the time. So she said, you know, pick them whatever on Amazon. So I picked The Crossing. And my second choice was actually the Buffalo Skinners, which I guess was because of the cost. I, I don't think I knew many songs on that album before I got it for Christmas. Uh, so when I got the present at Christmas, I remember my aunts and uncles and my family were all like, wait, Big Country lasted longer than the 80s. <laughs> so and that was the beginning of and still uh, a lot of teasing from my family. They were actually kind of excited that I that I got invited to be on the podcast. So that was nice for once. Usually they just make fun of me. Well, it's a great but, inter-
3: international honor. You know, everyone recognizes <laughs> that at least.
4: Yeah, I can put in my resume. <laughs> but um, yeah, I
3: assumed you had already.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, it needs to be finished first. <laughs> so uh, basically, you know, I don't find that much... In CD stores, uh, most of the stuff I buy off of Amazon or eBay. But uh, I guess to f- close out, a couple of fun facts. Uh, I keep my, my CD collection from Big Country in a fireproof box. <laughs> because I'm, I don't know, I just, I can't bear to think of something happening to it. It keeps me sleeping at night if I know. Because I That's spent, a- you know, a good amount of money as a kid trying to buy CDs. Wow.
3: That's Techno absolutely fantastic. Calm. Yeah, I was going to say, Swine will love that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's better than what you have. It's everything around.
3: With <laughs> oh, it's sad. That That is incredible, though, Kara. That, that, those are great stories. And it's cool that you actually got introduced to the band with The Crossing, even though you came to them uh, at such a later date. You kind of started at the first album like all of us did. Yeah. Very interesting.
4: Yeah, but every everything else was, as you can guess, completely out of order.
3: Right, right. Well, we I want to talk to you, too, about where Buffalo Skinner stands now that you've probably heard everything. But yeah. uh, let's go to Tim. And Tim is is one of our more esteemed guests. I mean, he's a director of uh, Marvel's Avengers Assemble cartoon. He's an incredible artist. It, clearly, his crowning moment in life and his professional and personal life is the creation of the Christmas hog uh, drawing and art that he has done. I'm sure the world has seen by now. Tim, tell us a little bit about your, your big country story. Uh, well, I started as a, a, a poor black
1: child, and then I became an astronaut, a man barely alive. <clears throat> the American dream. Yeah. Um, 1983, uh, in a big country, came on my radio one day, and it was like a hand reached out from the speaker and grabbed me by the neck and shook me. And, uh, and it has not let go ever since. And I ran right out and I bought the cassette. That was my first big country purchase ever. And wore that out and then re- went out and got the LP. And then uh, followed up with all the other albums as they came out. Um, usually within uh, a couple of days of hearing a new song on the radio. I'd uh, I'd have that LP in my hands and it would be spinning on my platter. Um, And then uh, I think the first CD I got must have been Peace in Our Time. And it was all disc from there. And it was still kind of a low-grade fandom at the time. They were competing with other bands for my attention. Um, But then uh, around 96, 97... Um, I had some uh, turmoil going on in my personal life and found myself turning to the music that meant the most to me, and Big Country uh, stood out front and center because they had such a huge library of songs and so much of it was speaking directly to me at the time. Um, That's when it really took hold and, and moved up to the top of my list. Um, and after that, uh, when the internet came into its own and I was able to start um, shopping online, uh, I just went hog wild and grabbed every single and every uh, uh, you know mini release and, and all these limited edition things. And um, now I'm looking at what I believe to be a, at least a complete commercial collection. Um, I haven't really dug much deeper than that, but it doesn't seem like I need to now that I've got you guys on my friends list and your show and all the other pals in the, in the big country circle. So fantastic! yeah, it's, it's still my, um, my number one band. Anytime anybody asks me, mm-hmm. you know, what's your favorite band? You, uh, I don't even have to fish for an answer.
4: Yeah. And, same.
1: And like Kara said, uh, I, the reaction I get from a lot of people is they're still around if they remember them at all. And I say, yes, not only are they still around, they're better than ever. Mm. And there is a gigantic back catalog of of amazing music. And there's something that can appeal to everyone. Um, But Buffalo Skinners is my favorite album of them all for many reasons I'm sure we'll go into on this show. And I'm uh, very happy to be here talking about it.
3: Well, we are happy to have you here. So thanks, for guys, you guys, for sharing those stories. And and the Buffalo Skinners is the reason we're here today. We're going to be talking about the Buffalo Skinners today um, in, in kind of a more general way. And then this is going to lead up to Svein and myself doing our usual deep dive discussion. Who knows how many episodes that's going to be, but we're going to be going into each song really detailed, as we always do. So this this is not that, basically, is what we're trying to get across. The reason for this is because we really feel like the buffalo skinners is a huge album in the big country uh discography it's, it's one of those kind of watermark albums for a lot of big country fans and so we we thought kind of as we did with steel town that this was an album that we'd like to get some other people's uh insights on as to what it was like when it came out for them and sort of get all those general things out of the way. Um, and then when Swine and I regroup for our deep dive, we can just like kick in right away to, okay, here's a loan and start talking about it. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about with when it comes to the Buffalo Skinners and kind of the whole uh climate that was happening at the time with music in general and with big country. So let's let's jump into that. One thing that we always do before we before we get into the album itself when we're talking about an album is we like to set the context for what was happening in the world at that time with music and some other little things so very briefly let's let's go through what some of the top selling albums were in the u.s back in 1993 all right so this will give you a good example of the the taste of the american public at least so the top the top selling album of the year was the bodyguard soundtrack um with whitney houston's version of i will always love you being one of the top singles of the year and then this next one is the one that really just makes me sad the second top selling album of the year was breathless by kenny g an album which i'm sure an artist too which i'm sure features heavily in all of our all of our uh, collections number three was janet by janet jackson number four was the great billy ray cyrus some gave all and number five was the spin doctors pocket full of kryptonite any of those album titles register with you kara
4: uh, oh yeah. I mean <laughs> I oh the album titles. Uh
2: just say no. <laughs> We'd say no. no.
4: I, I mean the artists do.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah.
4: I, well, I know this I know definitely of the spin doctors. They were on Sesame Street.
3: Oh that's right, yeah. Oh man. man. I remember that. Okay, you yeah. Know, by
4: the brick wall singing. I remember that.
3: Man, we're old. Okay, and then films. I'm Top, just young. You are young. Top films of the of the uh of the year. Number one, Jurassic Park. Number two, Mrs. Doubtfire. Number three, The Fugitive. Number four, Schindler's List. And number five, The Firm with Tom Cruise. Seen them all, like most of them. Um, now, the UK was a little bit different in top singles, as you might imagine. I don't know if it's any better, though, but just, <laughs> just a different form of bad, perhaps. Um, number one in the UK, the top single was I'd Do Anything for Love by Meatloaf. Number, number two, Can't Help Falling in Love by UB40. Number three, All That She Wants by Ace of Bass. There's a name I haven't heard in a while. Number four is a, a band I've never heard of. The song was No Limit, and the, the artist was Too Unlimited. Oh God. <laughs> and number five, another song or artist I've never heard of. And if Jason was on, we could ask him what, who, who this is. But uh, the artist was Gabrielle, and the song was Dreams. Mm-hmm. So um, so there's a little uh, tidbit of what was happening in the world uh, from an entertainment perspective. A couple couple of noteworthy news things, and Svein will appreciate this. Star Trek Deep Space Nine premiered in 1993. Um, Bill Clinton was inaugurated as the, the American president. Um, the Russian space station Mir had, its, had the very first art exhibition in space. Uh, The European Union was created. The World Trade Center was bombed. Horrible. Uh, The two officers convicted of beating Rodney King here in America were convicted on civil rights charges. Um, River Phoenix died of a drug overdose in that year. And a 13-year-old accused Michael Jackson of molesting him, the first of many. Um, So, There are a couple other celebrity deaths you left out. Oh, I'm sure there are many. Oh, these, these
1: are big standouts. Get get this. 1993, we lost both
3: Andre the Giant and Hervé Villachez. Oh, man, how could I forget that? Especially Andre the Giant. I'm a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, thanks for piping in with that. That's that's good. I, it's bad, but uh, yeah, Andre the Giant. But um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at here and setting this up to is uh, – no love for Hervé Villachez no, Yeah, okay. well, I, I did love Hervé, Herve, yes I loved Hervé Villachez he was, he was something You're Hervé Villachez
0: That's right
5: You played that too, right? Yeah, right uh-huh. You blow me away
0: Thank you very much
5: No, 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 I'm telling you what you do It's really unbelievable
0: I'm glad you like it
5: No, 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 I'm telling you I really get what you do The whole thing ringing the bell In the three-piece suit, Fantasy Island I love it I really got. You. No, I really respect it You know, it's got a very special scent to it I think it's beautiful Thanks Do me a favor, give me one, huh? You what? Come on, we all want to hear it. Come on, just one. You mean that? We want to hear it. Come on, right? Come on, do it. Herve, do it. Herve, do it for me. Do it. Herve, do it. Do it. Come on, do it.
0: All right. The plan, the plan.
3: Ah, that's great. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I, I want to go back, and and Kara, you're going to have to probably... Sit this very brief portion out um, oh, because, absolutely because I want to talk about what our perspectives of music were at the time that Buffalo Skinners was about to come yeah. into the scene So I, I mean, don't
4: know the climate
3: yeah exactly but you can add you can add something to this I'm sure but it's fine what, what are your memories of that time period musically I mean what, what did you think of what was going on at the time and, and not just not just in general but about big country and where you saw them and what your hopes were for the next album?
2: Yeah, 93 is a special year for a lot of reasons for me because I was uh, living in Bergen at the time and Big Country was pretty much, I knew nothing. The last sign of life for me was the No Place Like Home album when that was in the shops and after that, Zilch for a couple of years. Um, It's interesting about the musical climate because you, you list all these things and when I think back of the early 90s, that was supposed to be the year of grunge Where's the Nirvana albums in the top five. Where's Pearl Jam. <laughs> right. Uh, think thinking back, that's kind of what I think of for those years, and they like they should have been there, but um, they were
3: not far behind of the top five. Yeah, they,
2: I'm surprised too.
4: They were like
3: I, like, I like in, Well, like in utero was I think number seven or something. But uh,
2: yeah, no. So that that's definitely as far as the rock climate. Uh, I don't think a lot of people our age group sort of re- relates to the Bodyguard or, or Kenny G. <laughs> but uh definitely Sleep it was for
1: yourself
2: yeah well i said our age <laughs> 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 i th- i just think uh you know it, it was definitely all about grunge and uh, there had been a big climate change from the 80s and big country is uh certainly was at the time seen very much as an 80s band so they were probably not in fashion if they ever were they probably were in the early parts of the years but uh uh, I've told a story on the show before, and I guess we'll tell about what is our memories of sort of encountering this album. I was uh, caught totally unaware. Uh, I walked into a record store and they were blasting uh, The One I Love. And I heard it was Big Country. There was no doubt. And I had no idea they were out with an album, let alone that, you know, the song would be so kick-ass and just hit me in a solar plexus. So... Uh, I was quick to grab that and go home and just take it in and uh, that um, I told that story before it's uh, that that's kind of something you want experience these days because the record stores don't work the same way and uh, it it was kind of a a mind-boggling thing that they played big country then never mind now Um, so uh, the second thing about 1993 was that's when I went online and discovered a big country community we were about 15 people (laughs) in the in the very first early version of what was then the big country mailing list so that was uh, the album that i was first able to discuss online and from that point on i learned more about big country and was more in key with big country than ever before really so that album kind of launched or relaunched sort of a more community thing for me, that I I found other people, because I was always alone. (laughs) Always. And then, when picking up that album, I actually went online and searched, and uh, I found other people. So that's uh, something I will always remember. Yeah, fantastic.
3: What about you, Tim? What are your memories of that time period? Um, Musically, I wasn't uh,
1: wasn't really into a lot at the time. Uh, I did a quick check of the albums that came out that year. It turns out the only ones I bought were uh, Sting's Ten Summoner's Tales and U2's Zuropa. And um, honestly, I was much more into like movie soundtracks at the time, and I specifically remember uh, the Star Wars Trilogy box set, which was uh, a CD box containing... Uh, it was the first release that contained music that hadn't been uh, uh, heard on the original LP soundtracks, so that was a huge deal for me. And um, uh, every all the other music I bought that year came from Japan because I'm a huge anime fan, and uh, anime soundtracks are probably my, um, my the uh, form the biggest part of my collection here.
4: Those can be really good. Yeah, I also have Ten Summoner's Tales, uh, which I only really like a few off of that. I like I do like older music. I think what happened too, like around the same time I got into the Crossing. That's when I found my my mom's like cassette collection. So I really got into Genesis around that time period. Oh wow. Like either either era of Genesis I really like because I mean obviously near the end it gets kind of tacky, but like I'm talking about like Wind & Wuthering, like that album, like when it's Phil Collins still at the front, like can still be he can still be really good at the front because some people diss him. But anyway, uh, so I like both eras of them. Uh there is yes cassette in there. So I I've always like grown up listening to older music, so Fancy. it's nothing like most of the names you throw out there I know.
3: Fantastic. Good. Uh, you are clearly worthy of being here to discuss these things. <laughs> Thank you. So we, that's good. <laughs> we appreciate it. And you know, I just got poked by Jason. So I'm gonna try to bring him on here and let's see what happens. Jason, if you can hear me, prepare to be added to our group.
5: Good afternoon.
3: Oh he's he's hears us now? Good okay, good. You joined it. Good afternoon, Jason. How are you? Yes,
5: I can hear you. I'm very well, thank you. Very J- well. Excellent. It took me so a while to get some signal. You found higher ground, I take it. I did. I've, I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. It's <laughs> getting dark. Um, there, there's a storm blowing in. I'm on, under a flight path. So, it, you know, good luck with the edit. You know?
3: Well, you know, we've got Jason here. Jason is our mobile guest. He's, he's gone mobile like that Who song. So uh we we'll, we have him on for who knows how long. So, Jason, let me ask you this while we've got you here. We've, we've asked the others um about the musical climate of 1993. And Tim and Kara and I, of course, can only speak from the U.S. perspective. So I spoke from the Norway perspective. What, what was your recollection of the climate of music in 93 in the U.K.? And where do you think big country was going to – I mean, if they even – could have fit into that. I mean, where do you think uh, th- they, I guess, fit into what was popular at the time over there?
5: Well, it's interesting because I heard the last five minutes of the conversation that you've been having, oh, and I totally agree, which fine. The Buffalo Skinners um, sort of came out of nowhere, really. I knew it was on the way, but the sound of it was was what what, what I just couldn't get my head around the, the change in sound from No Place Like Home. It was just so so huge and and uh pearl jam were quite popular over here um faith no more angel dust album was was um a marginal album but it was making waves over here and it there was a lot more aggression in music i think guitars were back at that point and and it felt very much um like big country had returned with a with a, a pretty powerful album i have to say that was my first impression of it
3: yeah that's great and it, just from my perspective i mean when you say guitars are back that's perfect and i think uh in a way that sets the stage for for, for buffalo skinners and the at least promise of that album doing well or the hope that, of that album doing well because you know when big country hit the scene in 83 it was widely talked about as being synthesizers were the thing and big country was considered a guitar group and that wasn't considered hip at the time um but now there was kind of a a groundwork laid for big guitars to come back, and that's what they came back with. I mean, I'm not going to talk too much more about the climate of music because I think we've beat that to death, but let's talk a little bit about maybe what our thoughts were about big country right before Buffalo Skinners came out. I mean, for me personally, I remember getting the the Country Club magazine, and uh, that, back then when we had no internet connection, (laughs) no internet to, to peruse, no YouTube to look at, Kara, um, that was the way we got our information. We waited and waited patiently by the mailbox for the new edition of Country Club Fanzine, or Inwards Fanzine, or We Save No Souls Fanzine um, to come out and give us some tidbits of what was coming.
4: Yeah. And,
3: and I'll never forget reading. Times were tough. Yeah, times were hard, man, and it <laughs> snowed all the time. But um, I'll never forget reading this from one of the uh, one of the versions or one of the uh, issues of Country Club, and it got me so excited. And I remember just reading it over and over again. It said, they are back with the fanfare. Their new album, The Buffalo Skinners, is truly a smash album. And keep in mind, this is before the album came out. This was like a promo for it. It said, The Buffalo Skinners is truly a smash album and the trademark anthemic guitars and a harder, rockier sound than their most recent releases. For everyone who remembers the thrill of the first two albums, prepare to be delighted. And I just remember reading that sentence and thinking, oh, man, finally they're going to come back. And it it specifically said the crossing in Steeltown. If you remember those, prepare to be delighted. Um, Because as many people would go back to, Peace in Our Time was kind of a disappointment for many of us. And then I don't know how you guys feel, but No Place Like Home was even more so for me. And then just desperately wanting that sound to come back. Um, that i love so much from big country and to hear that that was coming got me so thrilled and then on the very next page it even confirmed that mark brzecki was going to be coming back for the forthcoming tour so let's let's go around a little bit and talk about what you guys were hoping for for the new big country album before you heard buffalo skinners i mean had you given up hope that they would ever reclaim that territory in a way that they lost or or were you hoping that they would come out with this kind of a big album i mean jason let 's let's start with you since you 've been absent for a while what, what were your hopes for the new big country record
5: i I have to say, I was given a lot of pre pre information because i 'd spoke to Ian Grant um, uh, during sort of pre production um, and so i I kind of knew what to expect in a funny kind of way. Ian talked of it sounding very neil youngish and um, he quoted um, some of the songs from the previous album. Uh, Kansas and and a few others that sort of gave the uh, gave an idea of what to expect musically and and obviously I knew that um, Simon was involved drumming on the album and I think Ian's words were the drums are going to blow people away and he wasn't wrong you know he wasn't wrong at all there so I, I kind of knew that they were Very much looking to reclaim lost territory. Um, Ian spoke about it being a 10-year anniversary of, of The Crossing. They were in the same studio. Chris Briggs was involved again. It was a new label, first album on the label. And there was very much a feeling of... Um, it's a ten-year cycle, and we're back. We're going to come back with something huge. And Ian was enthusing about it. I spoke to him at a long phone call, and he was very gracious and kind in those days to, to be able to spare his time and talk to a, a tin Park fanzine from the carrot crunching corner of, of Great Britain. But <laughs> I have to say, you know, he he gave us a lot of information, and um, I don't think we had an issue of Inwards planned at that point. So a lot of it got. Kind of held back a long time, and by which point the album was pretty much out. But um, I was very fortunate to get that insight from the studio and and just how how up they were with with what they were doing. Um, and I can contrast that with with hanging around with the guys during the early period of No Place Like Home. And I would say uh, seeing them in the studio and being able to sort of gauge the mood in the studio. At the time, this was early days of No Place Like Home as well, and there there wasn't. I didn't sense a, 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 a we're claiming back our territory vibe in the studio back back then. Whereas Ian was definitely definitely sort of giving that that sense off when 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 he spoke to me. So I could tell there was something special brewing. Is the short answer to the question? Oh, that's great.
3: You were you were worth waiting for, man. Great insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, um, it's fine. What, what what about you? What were your hopes of? I mean, you and I have talked about our thoughts about those pieces, or at least No Place Like Home, so people should know those by now. But, I mean, did you have any particular hopes for the new Big Country album when it was coming out, or did you just were you just going to wait and see what happened?
2: I, I never thought there would be another one, to be honest. I, I thought uh, the way things were going, and uh, it's kind of like what Jason was saying. It's, I, I, I don't have a problem with No Place Like Home. I actually love it. But I could see how they moved away from their glory years, and seemed to settle into something and uh, the path seemed to wind towards petering out rather than finding some sort of re-energizing thing and coming out with this bombshell of an album so i was totally blown away so <laughs> i guess i was pessimistic uh, or cautiously pessimistic uh, So uh, no, I I did not know what would come. Uh, It really hit me uh, hard and unexpected. And uh, if someone told me there would be a new big country album coming, what would I have thought? Well, that's kind of hindsight, which is neither here nor there. But I'm pretty sure I I would not have expected this.
3: Fantastic. What what about you, Tim? I mean, had you followed the band pretty? I mean, you said that you were picking up each album. Did you have any kind of feeling for uh, what was to come, or were you happy with the band's? route at that point, or were you kind of one of the fans, like many of us, who w- were a little disillusioned prior to Buffalo Skinners?
1: Uh, for me, the stakes weren't very high. Um, I liked everything they did. I, I didn't view uh, Peace in Our Time or No Place Like Home as digressions at all. Um, I had just kind of started to pick up some of the B-sides around uh, around the time those two albums came out, and I just sort of looked at it as a, uh, a body of work that went in different directions at different times, and none of those directions disappointed me. Uh, I had no warning at all for Buffalo Skinners. Um, I had, I, there, there was no online community for me at the time, and I didn't really watch the, the newspapers or the, the trade papers to see what was coming. Um, but 1993 was the first full year that I lived in California. Uh, Moved in at the end of 92. And one of the legendary L.A. record stores that I definitely wanted to visit one day was Virgin in Hollywood. And so on my first trip to Virgin, which was this gigantic palace of music, which is no longer there, um, I went looking through some of the bins uh, to find my favorite artists. I started with Big Country and the Bees, and right there was Buffalo Skinner's completely out of the blue and I picked it up and took it home and
3: I have not uh, recovered since then. Those moments are so great too. And they don't (laughs) happen very, very often these days, do they?
1: Yeah. And, and once again, it represented another direction that the band could go in. And this one I thought just happened to be uh, exactly the right one compared to, you know, all the others. Um, I, uh, I do love the crossing, but it was never my favorite album. Um, Steel Town was a little better than that. I, th- I think uh, the Seer was a little better than Steel Town for various reasons. Um, so I don't know if my uh, path or my... Take care, Tim. Uh,
3: sorry? Take care, Tim. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I, well, I was going to say,
1: I don't know that my path, my arc through um, through fandom is the same as anybody else's, but um, I was always... Very happy to hear what they were doing next, and uh, they always had a surprise in store. And um, one of the things that I remember clearly was hearing Kansas and Ships on Buffalo Skinners and thinking, wait a minute, didn't I hear those before? And then, you know, when I, whenever I get a new album from somebody, I always like to go back and re listen to the previous ones to, to see what sort of continuity there was. And that's when I realized those two songs were on the previous album, but uh, I didn't really notice them in the way that I was noticing them now because they had so much power and passion behind them. Yeah. No and d- it made me really happy that they decided to go back and revisit those two in particular.
3: Yeah, no doubt. And I, I want to talk about that in, in a little more length later on, but that's great. And and Kara, I know, you, know you, you are coming at this kind of the way we are now, and I kind of feel the way Tim ex- expressed when he – what he felt at the time at the time i was kind of disappointed in the the direction of the band but now that i look back on the entire output i appreciate everything more um but i'm curious what you think Kara? i mean what do you judging from you being able to take everything all in at once i mean do you view albums like no place like home or peace in our time as as missteps for the band or do you feel like they are just part of the whole tapestry of big country
4: I feel like that's a really hard question to answer, but it's fine that you asked it. Um, Well, because I grew up in the kind of CD age where I'm able to kind of pick and choose. I mean, I do. uh, I do listen to the albums uh, like together sometimes, but most of the time I keep them in my fireproof box (laughs) and... I just listen to the m p three versions or I burn them onto discs and listen to them while I'm driving, so I do kind of pick and choose what songs you know i I kind of disregard the songs that I really don't like, so I kind of have a a distorted view yeah, so you're listening of everything.
3: More, so you're listening more toward for uh you're listening more to your favorite songs from those things, not necessarily thinking of them as a whole yeah album. so
4: i I really can't give you like an honest feedback because i know it's skewed. i can listen to everything and i can appreciate everything but i i can't give a straight up answer and more just makes me sad that they couldn't have commercial success yeah like i know that they deserve that's yeah. the thing that i know i can definitely answer
3: definitely well that's great no that's great and we're gonna get more into the album itself here where you, when you'll have uh you know you'll be able to share your opinions just like us yeah but we had to get that kind of out no, of the way I, but- ab-
4: I absolutely understand this was a this came out a year before I was born. What well, can, really, <laughs> right. can, can I really give on it
3: <laughs> It was a good omen for your um, birth. It was a great, great album, and then you yeah. were born a year later, so that's great. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the album itself now. I mean, if you bear with me for a minute, I'll get a little few of the details out of the way. It's fine if I miss anything you think I should uh, throw in here, just let me know. But we, we talked about this being a 10th anniversary type of thing from The Crossing, and it's interesting that they recorded this at R.A.K. Studios, which was the same studio that they recorded The Crossing at. So um, I remember reading at the time, and in preparing for this, going back and reading, that they kind of felt that same vibe being back in the same studio again. And as Jason mentioned, uh, Chris Briggs had come into the picture again here too. Chris Briggs was the guy who signed Big Country back in 1983 to begin with. He had since started his own label, and it was kind of an offshoot, I think, of another label, um called compulsion records and uh anyone correct me if i'm wrong about any of this but there's there's kind of the famous story that uh ian grant took both chris briggs and steve Lillywhite to see big country play on the no place like home tour and kind of to get a feel for what they thought of the band and there was kind of still they knew that their time with phonogram was coming to an end and um chris briggs said Phonogram doesn't know what they have on their hands when he saw them and and Steve Lillywhite was equally glowing about Big Country still and I think Chris Briggs even said that he thought they were better then than they were when he signed them so when he got his record label going he was excited to sign Big Country up again and um, I believe what he said was he thought it was time for history to to repeat itself in a way so they went in to record uh, the album and they recorded during September and Oct- through, September through October 1992. It was engineered by a guy named Chris Sheldon, who had worked with the band on some other uh, tracks before then. And but it was produced by themselves. It was produced by Big Country, and that was the first time that they had ever produced themselves. And I think that's interesting when you consider kind of the the arguments that a lot of us have amongst each other and have for years when we're talking about peace in our time and the production on that album with Peter Wolf, who gave it such a keyboard heavy sound. And some of those songs sound so different from the demo versions that were released. And then uh, we talk about um, the guy, what was his name? Pat Moran, who produced no place like home uh, who maybe did a better job in a lot of our opinions, but it still wasn't really that big country sound that we had. So, Interesting uh, comment from Stewart here. He says, in speaking about this album, he said, it was great to be able to produce ourselves and do the things the way we wanted to. I believe this is the best album we have made since our first two. And when you hear interviews from Stewart a lot of the time, too, he's constantly talking about how much freedom that the band had and how he felt like doing the first or the last couple of albums were, were such a, was such a chore and he was so tired of of having to basically in his words dilute his artistic vision because of what other people were asking him to do big country okay where have they been well
0: in england stewart and mark said they went through all the record company garbage that gets thrown at bands but they're back with buffalo skinners I think between 1985 and, and 1990 we spent more time arguing about making music than actually making music. And I think it really diluted what we're about. You know, we're not kind of, and never will be, a real mainstream pop group. That's not what big country's about at all, you know, and I think people wanted us to be that be- simply because we'd, we'd had hits early on in our career. And I think we'd had that because we were ourselves, because we were unique. And uh, of course you're a kind of young, impressionable kid from a, from a small town and, and you, you kind of trust people. You know, you think, oh, well, he's been involved in this thing for a longer, longer time than I have. Maybe I should trust him. And I've found out now that any time I've ever trusted someone else's vision of what my music should be, all it's done is dilute it and make it this, into this, this bland thing that is virtually unrecognizable to me at times.
3: Let's just get right into the album. I mean, what did you guys think of the overall sound of this album versus what had come before? Uh, it, clearly, it was just a heavy um huge sound again but i will say that it wasn't while it felt like big country to me without a doubt and it felt like a return to big country it still seemed different in other words i wouldn't say that it sounded like the crossing era big country or the steel town era big country yet it still seemed like it was big country returning to what made them great which i think is an interesting thing because in in the past when i might say criticize some of these other albums and, and talk about how much I missed that quote-unquote old big country sound, some people will say, well, what do you want them to do? Recreate The Crossing in Steel Town over and over. Well, first of all, yes, I do want that. But <laughs> um, <laughs> being serious, I think this album is a good example of them staying true to what I love about big country, and yet still being able to change somewhat. So let's talk about kind of the overall sound of this album um and jason we'll start with you i mean what what do you think about the way this album sounded versus what we had gotten in the past and do you think that the fact that they were able to produce themselves uh really kind of led to that big huge almost explosion of emotion that comes through on this record that's kind of a leading question Uh, but
5: (laughs) yeah you know my initial impression of the sound was just how um full it was it was just a huge sound everything is as loud as everything else and 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 yet it's all audible and chris sheldon had been involved with a band called therapy over here and i always liked therapy sound because they had this huge huge sound big compressed drums and massive guitars and they were only a three-piece band but they they really filled filled the sound up and and buffalo skinners just instantly i had the, the the comparison was there from From the get go really and and I was just blown away by how it didn't relent, even ships, which obviously we knew as a as a piano ballad from the previous album, even that has has got full power, and everything turned up to ten and it It was absolutely of its time in, in terms of the sound it, it it sat perfectly well amongst everything else that I was hearing at the time for sure ah, fan- yeah fantastic. What about you, spine?
2: I can't argue with that. It was really uh, a, a re- reinvigorate the band coming out uh, with all guns blazing. But uh, I just want to add to your um, your tale of of whoa, Let me find my notes here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, please do. I knew you had more um, things to add here.
2: Yeah, I just want to go back to the production of the album. You know, they uh, they did have some people around them, even though they produced it themselves. They uh, they had. Uh, some of England's best producers around, with um, Nigel Godrich, who is famous for Radiohead Travis and Paul McCartney and several others, and obviously Simon Phillips, who is also a well-known producer, in addition to, uh, to a drummer. Uh, on this album, they were sound technician and, and drummer, but uh, their experience, I'm sure, was something that they utilized to make it as sonically excellent as it is, because this is not just the style. It's the sound, and there is a sound to this album that I feel uh, it's incredible, really. If you look at first-time producers of their own stuff, and it sounds so crisp, it's incredible. I mean, you don't come out the gate first time you produce and do something like this if you don't have good people helping out in the background. It's incredible, and uh, the the recent remaster that has those uh, extra bonus tracks tacked on, it just reveals it. It, the, The sound is so crisp. And uh, I don't think they managed to uh, to replicate that on the next album as well, even though you have basically the same people without necessarily those people around them that they had for this album. Uh, similar sounds, but there is a crispness to the Buffalo Skinners that kind of complements that uh, ferocity. It's very clean without being clean. I don't know. Very clear, I guess clear aggression, clear, huge guitars. So so that is great. And obviously the album was mixed in Abbey Road, which is a fantastic studio for, for mixing. I think people prefer that for mixing stuff than recording these days, but uh, it's obviously a name with a lot of history to it.
4: Uh, I'd also like to add that there was a guy, a programmer, his name was Joe Bull. Um. I just thought that was a funny name. Sorry. <laughs> <Joe>. <laughs> I was trying to be dramatic. I, I was, wait, that was, I was, that was
3: that waiting funny for the... <laughs> Did you say Joe Bull?
4: Like Bull, like B-U-L-L.
3: <laughs> okay, Bull, Okay. <laughs>
2: Okay, that's really what I thought.
3: I thought it was Bull. That's funny. That, that, was, that was why you got the crickets for a moment because I was trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out exactly what, what you said. Don't worry, I'll, I'll edit that to make that, to make that work. <laughs> it's in keeping with the large bovine theme of the album. <laughs> well, you know, and speaking of that,
1: I, I wanted to mention that by complete coincidence, um, the cover art for U2's one single also has Buffalo on it. I'm looking at it right now, and it came out the year before.
3: It's a photo of Buffalo uh, being stampeded off a cliff. That's right. I remember that. I remember buying that single, actually.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, let's talk – since you bring that up, let's talk about the title of this album. And bear with me for a second because I've got a quote here from Stuart that I would like to read. So the title of Buffalo Skinners. When when I first heard that title, I just remember thinking, wow, this sounds like a big country title. And I, I've talked before about uh, being a guy who, who loves – titles of songs like if if i see a title of a song that i've never heard before or something that really speaks to a certain type of emotion or a certain type of thing it it intrigues me and so like for example no place like home i remember seeing that title and i thought okay that could be good but i've heard that phrase many times and it seems almost cliched but when i saw buffalo skinners it 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 just seems to capture that something hard and vicious is coming and when stewart was asked about the title he says it's a great phrase, isn't it? The line itself came from a poem I came across. It describes to me the fact that we are willing to squeeze the last breath out of nature and the environment simply for personal gain. I like the idea of the kind of picture that it paints of something that may be passing and that's precious and should be kept hold of. And I like that kind of idea that something's beautiful but it's transient. I also like the fact that it reflects an environmental concern too. But uh, So there's his – um, thought process for coming up with that idea, and I think his his comments about some something it lending itself to something that 's beautiful and transient and something that 's precious but passing i think in hindsight that really is kind of a a moving way to to discuss that that uh, to think about it because in hindsight of what's happened with the band and what happened with him in general and kind of the memories that we have at that time but Just curious what you guys think of uh, the title Buffalo Skinners and and how that fits with the whole theme of the music that's contained in the album.
2: I have another quote from Stuart, actually, uh, from Record Collector Magazine in February 1993. He said, uh, I came across the phrase as the title of a poem. I see it as a metaphor for the raping of the earth's resources. The the phrase seemed to evoke something that was special in its time, but it's now passing on which is also a little a, a grim bit. And I'll also end with a quote from Tony, who was asked about this song and how, why they named the album after the song that wasn't on it. And he just said that the imagery of the title was too cool not to keep. It didn't matter that the song wasn't on it. The same could be said about The Crossing. I also remember going to the Pentagon Zoo, which had two buffaloes, which blew me away. Buffaloes are big, and so were we. <laughs> Nice.
3: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think this might be my favorite Big Country album title. It's not my favorite Big Country album, but I think it might be my favorite Big Country album title. And so what do you guys think of this title and just kind of the, the tone that it sets? Jason, if you want to start.
5: Um, I'm going to break the break tradition here and say it wasn't a title that immediately grabbed me, um, purely because we don't have that many buffalo <laughs> roaming around here. So <laughs> right. It, 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 I, it felt very American to me um it, it did suggest uh, and as tim said the one connotation with the u2 cover and i believe there was a video for one as well that had the, the same shots grainy black and white shots of the buffalo going over the cliff
3: there was um, yeah.
5: and i think i superimposed that over the way i looked at the title i think that that was my most recent experience of buffaloes and therefore i saw it as a, a an american sort of sounding title to me. Uh, and, and indeed, the, the artwork, it had a kind of, I don't know, it was different. It was a different sort of feel to, to the artwork as well. So the whole initial, um the, the initial idea I had from it was that, yeah, it had America written on it to me. That that was from my little humble opinion anyway.
3: No, that's really interesting, actually. And uh, I, I think that makes total sense. And probably one of the reasons it struck such a chord with me is that I I was such a fanatic about Native Americans uh, ever since I was a little kid. So I was always aware of how Buffalo – the place that the Buffalo held in their culture and as well as the the fact that so many um, uh, pioneers and – the buffalo were basically slaughtered you know by the by the hundreds of thousands and what that did to that population so that was for me as an american that was in a phrase that really resonated and as someone who was really interested in that type of thing but yeah i totally understand how that might not resonate in other ways that's an interesting point what about you tim what did you think of that and and we can talk about the album artwork too. throw that into the equation
1: well this is a this is a big loaded question here um I didn't. Uh, I don't remember hearing that quote from Stewart about finding the line uh, in a poem. Um, but from the get-go, it was my assumption that the, the underlying theme of this album is big country versus America. And it was uh, it was self-evident in the sound from beginning to end. You had that, you know, hard, venomous, nealed young guitar lick everywhere you looked. And the title, to me, uh, spoke to something else. Um, The album was recorded in 92, which was the last year of that 12-year horror show of the Reagan-Bush administrations. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious that the content of the protest songs on this album speak directly to uh, those years. And to me, the Buffalo Skinners, as a title, had a very specific reference, uh, whereas we know that the uh, the Native Americans would use every part of the buffalo, they're pretty famous for that. Uh, this title, to me, spoke of the mentality where you would kill this animal and only remove the skin, walk away with that and leave everything else behind to, to rot and go to waste, and that to me, as a uh, as a progressive liberal, uh, you know, thinker, uh, was exactly how I felt about uh, twelve years of Republican policy, and so everything coalesced in that title and that image for
3: me. Now that's that's really interesting, and it's funny you bring that up, and it's certainly irrefutable i think that with the political statements that are being made but i remember it's fine do you remember this too back on that big country mailing list i remember there was there was talk especially about i'm getting a little off on a tangent here but about sort of what tim is talking about i remember some people specifically some americans being taking some offense at some of the songs like for example selling of america i remember some people saying you know where does how how does stewart get off Talking about the political structure of America, he doesn't even live here. Uh, do you remember that those
2: conversations? Yeah, that's true. I, I remember, remember some people that saying regularly. that. Yeah, I, but uh, I think um, there were people saying that, but I also think um, I think the bigger discussions came when he started being a little religious, like God's great mistake. That was the big one. That was a lot of discussions, and uh, I guess we could uh, we could have. I guess rehashed some of that old fun stuff uh, when we discussed that album. That doesn't quite belong here. But uh, true, you know, he, uh, he did have views that were very European and seeing something perhaps from the outside. And uh, that can be offensive to those who don't share those views. It's very natural.
0: I think your personal and political response to things are, are all tied in. I think that's a whole... You know, I think very few people are, are able to... to to split up the two um, and what, what I've always tried to do through that is, is rather than, than write from any kind of sort of political dogma type of attitude is, is to, to just tell the story direct and very very plain you know straight ahead and, and show both sides of it because then I think you've been you allow people to identify with it who have been through that situation rather than saying well this sucks and it shouldn't happen you tell a story about somebody that it happened to you and then people go into addiction, and go, and then they go themselves. Oh, that shouldn't really have happened to that person, you know? And, and then it becomes a personal thing to them because they've they've made a conscious decision about something that that should or should not have happened.
3: Kara, what about you? What do what do you think of this title? I mean, when you when you looked at the whole, you said this was the second album that you listened to, right?
4: Yeah, I got the same time. Oh, oh, wait, no, I didn't get the same time, but I got it when I bought the crossing.
3: Okay, so yeah. so since this is like the 10th anniversary of The Crossing and you listen to The Crossing and then the Buffalo Skinners. Did you think that this sound was, was completely different from what you heard on The Crossing? Or did you think that they fit together? I mean, were you? what, what were your thoughts about the overall sound and, and tone of this album?
4: Well, I think because I don't have the context of peace in our time and I didn't have the context of peace in our time and no place like home in there where their sound mellowed out. I didn't... I didn't appreciate like, oh, they're returning to the sound of the crossing. I just my biggest thought was like, wow, this isn't the same. You don't have the same feelings from this album than you have with the crossing, because with the crossing, like you guys are talking about with the big the comic book epic feeling, uh, the fantasy feeling of that. And then you listen to this and uh, you listen to the Buffalo Skinners and that's, you know, they're talking about. Well, a lot of it is either real life or like everyday living, or it's social commentary. specific social commentary on America. So, the title itself, like Jason, it gives me an, a very Americana feeling. So that's how that's how I feel about that.
3: No, that's that's great, great answer. I was just curious about how you viewed the two together, but
4: no, I I listened to both of when I listened to both of them, I just I got feeling they were different they were very different they were very different to me i could like i can understand how you guys would feel like yeah this is like the crossing the epic sound again but to me because the crossing sounded not not dated in a bad way but just dated in its own way mm-hmm. and this felt a lot newer
3: i agree completely in fact i don't think it sounds like the crossing much at all but it's got that big anthemic feel to it that it's kind of similar to that at least approach but there there are a couple of things i want to throw out here about this album that i think are interesting a little bit on the on the uh, more amusing side before we get too much further into the content of the album itself but one of the things that i would say about the the, the fact that they produced this themselves and and the sound of the album beyond what's fine said about the production which i agree completely with it's it's just got a crispness and a just a really professional sound to it um, even more so than the the previous two but what what i hear from the performances is a band that is just let loose off the chain i guess if you could if you could use that metaphor i mean they really sound like that they sound like a an an animal almost that that's been chained for a long time and someone finally removes that chain and you can just i don't know if i've ever heard a studio album that's got this kind of intensity live intensity almost to it i mean it almost sounds like really the band is playing live a live show a lot of that comes down to simon's drumming which which he was just Clearly, he was just given the directive to just do whatever you want because that seems to be what he's doing. He's not holding back for any reason. Um, the singing is is ferocious. The guitar playing is ferocious. But now here's something that you guys might not know. In fact, I had forgotten about this fact. I emailed Bruce uh, about a couple a couple days ago, a couple questions that I had about, about this that I wanted to get straight, mainly centering around the B-sides. Um, but he got back to me and reminded me of this, that I had read uh, – in one of the country club issues they actually recorded a week's worth of well, more than a week's worth of overdubs for this album that got completely trashed because there was a problem with uh, one of the tapes that they were using um and if you're not if you're not familiar with what i'm talking about uh with when i say overdubs basically simon came in laid down his drums that's the first thing that usually is done in recording. The drums are put down, and then once those are all done, the other musicians will come in and put their parts down. So they were putting all of their parts down and their vocals for uh, almost almost two weeks, and when they they were almost finished, overdubbing the entire album. And I'll read I'll read what Bruce wrote to me here in his email, so you can get a better feel for this. But he says. Um, um he says we had to record the album twice at RAK as we discovered that the machine that linked up the two 24-track studer's was malfunctioning. At least Simon's drums were safe as they were on the first machine, but as the guitars, bass and vocals went down to machine went down to machine 2, the tape would drift which meant the tuning would drift towards the end of the tape. Mickey Most had the machine repaired and gave us a week's free studio time. And I read about, uh, I read another quote from Stewart about this issue. Stewart says, we spent a week and a half actually recording the backing tracks for the album, and then we'd been overdubbing for a week when we realized that one of the machines was running fast. All the stuff we'd overdubbed was actually out of tune, so we had to go back and do a whole week's worth of work again. I had a bit of a moment when that happened. And he says, I think we kind of changed the sounds about a little bit, so so it was worthwhile, but on the day that we actually found it out, I must admit, I did... Um, go into into one a little bit i do that that tends to happen occasionally anyway not as often as i did in the past but i do you have certain ways of seeing things and i think if you're not strong about it then what's the point of anyone else listening to you so anyway um stewart giving the uh, impression there that he kind of went off after this happened but so really there was a lost version of the buffalo skinners that we will never hear Uh, bruce went on to say that they just recorded over it uh on that tape so they had basically finished the entire album um recording wise And they realized that they had to do it all over again, (laughs) with the exception of the drums. So So it turned
1: into a big rehearsal.
3: In a way, it did. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And Jason, you might be able to jump in on this, too, as a fellow musician. I know that sometimes I'm curious what you think about that, because I know for me, if that would happen to me, sometimes it's so hard to recapture like the the spontaneity of what you do the first time for example a lot of times we'll, we'll write demos we'll make demos and then you try to record the actual song later and there's something lacking it's like almost the demo seems to have more of a more emotion so i can only imagine what they went through trying to have to recreate all of these different overdubs the second time i mean were you aware of that and and what are your thoughts about having to deal with something like that as a musician
5: Well, I I think that's probably the worst thing that can possibly happen in a recording studio is to lose (laughs) a chunk of work. And it's funny. I didn't know that this happened uh, with the Buffalo Skinners recording. But I do know that they lost a week of work at Rockfield when they did No Place Like Home. They lost the first uh, very similar thing. I remember Tony telling me that they'd lost a week's worth of work and that Stuart went into one and it it caused a little bit of a, a scene then. So. I can not imagine what was going on in their minds for it to have happened again. I, I'm, that's news news to me. But from, from my point of view, I've I've had times when I've had tapes chew up. Back in the old day of tape recording, where tapes have chewed up and and recordings have been lost. And I think there's there's a mindset. You either go down one of two routes. You either say, "Oh well, it wasn't that good. We'll 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 start again." And, and it takes a brand new brand new path and you recreate it or in this case i think what probably happened was they just went back in with even more venom in their bellies and absolutely nailed it because i'm i'm quite shocked to hear that they lost it and had to do it again because as you said occasionally you go in and do something again and it doesn't lack the energy but i'm i'm guessing that this put even more energy into the into the equation
2: I would totally agree. I think this, this, this is probably a blessing in disguise, because I'm sure they were pissed going in and using that aggression to their benefit. It, it totally makes sense to me.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that aggression is something that you really hear. And I asked Bruce before he said that they recorded over it, I said well, why don't we start another uh, campaign, another, another a petition to get the unreleased Buffalo Skinners album <laughs> put out? And he said, no, we recorded over it again, so it's lost forever.
1: Now, but- I have to wonder if they came in separately for the first rounds and then had to come in again and, and do it all over in a, in a shorter time frame during that free week, perhaps. Do you think that meant that they, uh, that they performed as, in combos?
3: Well, usually when you do that kind of thing, usually what you do is – I don't know exactly how they did it, but when I I hear like a week to record something, I think, my gosh, if only I could do that. (laughs) Of course, this is what they're doing nonstop, 24-7 in that week span. But um, usually what happens – and Jason, feel free to jump in here too. I mean I guess every group is different, but I think the, the traditional way that it happens is, as I said, drummer will come in, put the drum parts down. The band will play along with that in what's called like a scratch track where whatever they're playing is not going to be used it's just something for the drummer to play along with after that they usually put down the bass um and then they'll put they'll put each instrument on basically one at a time so it's it's very rare that a band will be in a studio recording setting it it certainly happens but it's rare that a band will actually be playing all together um at the same time. So usually these things are added like one piece at a time. And, uh,
1: that's what makes me ask about that is, uh, when you hear some of the live performances from that time frame, especially in the initial, uh, tour for this album, they sound so much like what was done in the studio. It makes me think that the studio must've been the rehearsal for the live shows. And that, um, maybe some parts were combined and played simultaneously because the um the the rhythms and the uh the placement of all, of every uh every lick and every riff seems so perfectly synced with the album
3: yeah uh it it does you're right and but the thing is it's like simon was there on a very limited time so he came in and i think finished his drums in like 6 days and then he was gone mm-hmm. and he never came back so most of the stuff they did was to the tape of Simon's playing, you know. And uh, so it's, it's an incredible credit, I think, that they, they were able to get that incredible intensity and live sound um, on the album. And, and one other thing I wanted to throw out here uh, before we talk some more about the songs. Um, one of the things that I loved about this album when I heard it for the first time is that the ha quotient was back in a big way (laughs) and only a true big country geek which i'm assuming all of us are and all of us listening to this are would care about these things but i remember when peace in our time came out and no place like home came out i was thinking like man he's not saying ha much anymore (laughs) i really wish he would do it and i realized that could become a gimmick and for a lot of people it did but i always viewed that as just this joyous expression of or if not joyous then just this big emotional expression of of a of emotion mm-hmm. and um
1: of big country
3: yeah and they were all, often called karate barks i've heard them referred to as that so when i say ha i'm not only including just the word ha but also like the chicas and the and the digas and the get and that kind of thing so i'm and, I wanna, the, shah. and the shah yes so <laughs> i'm curious what you guys think and then, let me see if you can if you can guess this you might be it might be easy but where do you think Buffalo Skinner's ranks, and I've actually counted them. This is how much of a geek I am. I've counted them. Where do you think <laughs> Buffalo Skinner's ranks in, the ter- in terms of the most amount of karate barks from Stewart in the Big Country's <laughs> entire discography? <laughs> it's, fu- it's fine. Any idea where you think it ranks?
2: I think it ranks as number one.
3: How about you, Tim? Uh, I got
1: to agree otherwise you wouldn't bring it up.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know it's too leading a question isn't it? All right, well then we won't ask any more. Yes, it is it's actually number 1. Um the, the what the second would as you would assume would be the crossing. Now, the crossing has 17. Okay? Uh Buffalo Skinner's has 21. In in a long. Now- let me
2: get this right. Did, did you did you really count <laughs> I each did. and every album?
3: <laughs> no, I did. I did not count. I, I did not count each and every album because I, I was sure that the other ones did not even come close.
2: <laughs> okay, so these two you did.
3: Yeah, Skinner Skinner's and the Crossing. I went through and I I listened to every song and I counted every every Karate Bark.
2: <laughs> wow! Congratulations, you are the president of the Big Country <laughs> Club. And
3: Amazing! Just, Amazing. Just, thank you. And just real quick, I'll tell you. Uh, Alone has one chica. Seven Waves has two ha's. What Are We Working For has one ha. The One I Love, the one I love has zero. Long Way Home has – I didn't count these now because I don't count owls. Owls I do not count. You know how I feel about them. But Long Way Home does have two owls. I don't like those. Selling of America has one get on ya and six ha's.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. You're killing me.
3: Kansas has two ha's, one yee and one get on now. As well as one owl. I did not count that owl but I counted the others. Ships has three ha's. All Go Together has zero. Pink Marshmallow Moon has one cha. And Winding Wind has what is my favorite moment on the album. Even though this is not my favorite song on the album. This is my favorite moment on the album. I cannot I cannot stop smiling from ear to ear whenever I hear this. And that's in that midsection of Winding Wind where he, he belts out three ha's in quick succession. Just kills me every time. So, uh, so there, yeah, there you go. I am the president of the Big Country Nerd <laughs> Fan Club, and Buffalo Skinner's is the champion of the Karate Barks from Stewart. So,
1: there's one bark for every year that Kara has been alive.
4: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect. Perfect. Oh goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that.
3: And I could give you the count for the crossing too, if you're ever interested. So, feel free to let me know. But. I'd like to, to add
1: a little coda to that as well. Um, if you listen to some of the live performances at the time, uh, that's when Stewart started uh, Take Me to the Bridge.
3: Oh, yeah. And Guitar! <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those were some of those little American, Americanisms that I, I never quite put with Big Country. But uh, yeah, that's, that's true. That's very true. He did start picking that stuff up. Did anybody say Guitar before he did? oh yeah i've heard it before okay i can't tell you exactly where now take me to the bridge i remember hearing that in a led zeppelin song and i think it was played i think it was done before but uh that's that's one of the zep songs i can't remember which one but uh i think that's what he was referencing when he said it but well okay so the cringe that's it thank you let's talk now about the first single from the album and that was alone um, I'm curious what you guys – we always talk in big country land about the intelligence of releasing a certain song as a single. So brief story for me when I heard, first heard this. Um, this is the first thing obviously that I heard from Buffalo Skinners. But again, I was waiting for, for the album, for more information from the album. I was listening, reading the Country Club magazine and getting information as I could. And I got the, the date when the first single was going to be released alone. So I ordered it from an import shop. It's the only way I could get it. And when I got some idea of when it might show up, I used to walk every day to the mailbox where I lived at the time. It was almost a mile from my house. So I would walk every day to the mailbox. Come in the back. snow, right? Well, there was a point where it was in the snow. <laughs> the day it arrived, it was in the snow. Um, yeah, one day it finally it, it finally arrived and it snowed a lot that day. And I walked all the way down there thinking, oh, I'm going to go down here. And there it was. I opened the mailbox. And th- I'm sure you guys can relate to these times where – where you were waiting for something like this and you opened the mailbox and there it was and you were just so excited and I knew from the packaging you know that it was airmail and it would come from an import shop and I was like oh this is it so I remember bringing a loan back to the house and the first moment that I put it on those those first chords and that magical airy sound I knew that you know big country was back the,
0: mint the sky was gray and purple It wasn't blue I want the sky to be the way I
3: You know, when we talk about Alone on our deep dive or whatever, I'll go through some of the issues that I have with the song. I don't think it's like a perfect song necessarily. It's not my favorite on the album by, by a long shot, but there are moments in that song that I think are just so beautifully big country, from the lyrics to uh, of the verses to just the magical, beautiful uh, sound of those guitars chiming in the beginning before it kicks in. So I'm curious what you guys think, though, about Alone – being chosen, and you can add your story too as far as when you first heard it, if that was the first thing you heard, but what do you think should have been the first single from the album? Do you think it should have been Alone? Do you think that was a good choice? Do you think it should have been something else? And if so, what do you think it could have been? Um, So let's just go with what we've been doing, and Jason, I'll start with you. What what do you think about Alone as a single for the album?
5: Um, I don't think it was the best choice of single, personally. I I think Seven Waves would have been a better single to, to lead back in um, and, and it didn't immediately hit me, other than the intro, which I love that staccato sort of um, clawed guitar thing going on. But as a song, it didn't really bowl me away. It's been one of the tracks that has grown on me over the years, but it didn't hit me as, as a, an obvious single choice with so many other strong singles on the album. Um, but, but I did, saying that, I did go out and buy all the formats and, and do the usual sort of the ritual and and obviously a lot of good B-sides came with that single um, and I, I nowadays, I love it, I think it's a, it's a fantastic song, but at the time it wasn't what I was expecting to hear, having had all this sort of pre-knowledge of what to expect and, and it 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 was a bit of a curveball for me really um, in that it, it didn't seem as anthemic as I was thinking it was going to be, but as I said, it's grown on me over the years.
3: I think I agree with that. And, and real quick, um, it was between, the single choice in the beginning, from what I've read from Stewart, it was between Alone and Seven Waves. And I think Stewart said Long Way Home was also being considered. So, it's fine. what do you think about that choice as a single?
2: Well, it was the first song I heard, because it's the first song on the album. So, <laughs> so I guess it's people's first, whether they hear the single or the album, Alone hits you first. And uh, I liked it. I can't thinking at the time i had any issue with it uh, i don't think the single choice meant much to me personally um i can't say that it was released as a single in march 93 and made number 24 in great britain which was a step up from uh, previous albums actually so uh, it did some business it, it hit the top 40 which uh, ships also did ships also uh, it that made number 29 so alone was the most successful single from the album uh, in hindsight, I think the best single choice from the album is the one I love. And I know there was a feeble attempt at releasing a cassette single in the States, which I don't regard as a proper single. Uh, I think the reason there wasn't a CD single is because they had issues. And this this is a bit all over the place in terms of the question. But uh, uh, even though the album was kind of made to make a dent in the States, although not as wholeheartedly... Americana as, as a piece in our time musically. I mean, this works everywhere, which is great. You know, it's, if U.S. fails, it, it will musically still be valid anywhere else. But uh, the Fox Records, which, watch, uh, which was a subsidiary to RCA, had the responsibility of promoting it in the States. But they got into some sort of disagreement with RCA at the time. And shortly after that company was history. And Big Country and the album, The Buffalo Skinners, was was hit by that. And that impacted heavily their activities in the States. So the album didn't reach Billboard. And the one I love was released as a single over there. That was the choice they made. And uh, I don't think it got the proper release. I think that's why there wasn't CD singles, why there wasn't a, a bigger push. So big country went over there and did their most wholehearted attempt i think at the u.s market ever with touring and uh, promotion and we'll talk about jl leno they had everything going for them except the aforementioned issues with the record company so that kind of stopped it to a screeching halt despite all their efforts which is a it's typical for these guys isn't it it's so typical so as far as um single choice. I think for the US, they would picked the right one, but I don't think it got a proper release as a single. I don't think the cassette single thing is a valid attempt in my book. Uh, I think everybody can agree it was a nice experiment for a year or two, but that was never going to be the next format. Um, and I did buy, I have a lot of CD singles from uh, from the US priors. So I know they were out and about, at least in some territories. So um, as far as Europe goes, you know, we had Alone and we had Ships. Ships is probably a song that is everybody will agree that that was the correct choice, even though it didn't do the business as much as Alone. And uh, the interesting thing is the first single is really a symptom of how popular the previous effort was. It's always the case. So when they released East of Eden, for example, the most popular single from Steel Town, It's really a reflection of how popular The Crossing was. So Alone coming out and hitting number 24 is actually quite impressive because No Place Like Home didn't go anywhere. So uh, could another song have done that much more? I don't know. But um, personally, I have to agree with Seven Waves and the one I love as my picks for the album.
3: What about you, Tim? Would you have released a different single?
1: Absolutely. And uh, this is another loaded question for me because uh, Alone is one of those songs I listened to a lot back when I was going through my stuff. And um, it's very self-indulgent, and it's all about being angry and bitter at the world. And uh, when I uh, was preparing for this show uh, over the past week, I listened to the album again over and over and over. And every time I play that, I, I just... I'm pulled right back into that time and that mindset, and I parked a lot of rage into that song. Um, but that said, I don't think the content is right for a single, just because if you're out there competing with other music on the, on the charts, uh, you want to grab people with something more inclusive, not exclusive. This is a song about pushing the world away. Not bringing it in, or not uh, not commenting on something that affects everybody, even though this, you know, conceivably could be something everybody goes through. Um, but you know, big country for me is about the bigness. It's about making the world as big as possible, taking the wide view, and that's why my choice uh, would have been uh, Kansas. Absolutely, would have been Kansas because it's the biggest song on the album. It's got the, the, the widest um, worldview to it. Um, to me, it's uh, it shares tentpole status along with In A Big Country. Uh, to, when I look at those two songs, they seem like uh, the, the two poles that hold up everything that happened between uh, those two releases. And um, I also consider it a, what I call a flyover song. And what I mean by that is when I'm listening to it, the first image that comes into my head is flying at high speed over landscape or ocean or you know whatever you want to look down and see. And that to me is uh, is the band in a nutshell. You know they, they give you this image that's, that's wide and expansive and takes in a broad worldview. And I don't think any song on this album does that better than Kansas, so. Um, yeah. I think it would have been a much uh, stronger choice to uh, to lead with, and I think it would have caught a lot more attention.
3: Fantastic, that's great. I'm, I'm with you on a lot of that. So, Kara, I know that I'm just curious from from you if if like uh, if you even think about things from a single perspective, because
4: well, you guys mention it, so
3: yeah, I, I mean, do now. Okay, well, because you know when we were growing up and when we were younger and listening to these things that was kind of the big way that bands were promoted was with a single
4: no I get you because they're cheaper and because I mean I go record shopping so I know like I I know I understand like that that was the way things were if you liked the band you bought a single if you liked it that much then you bought the album right I understand
3: well well, do you think there's a song that that would best represent this album to the public I mean do you think that, that the one I love was a good choice for America for example or would you have released something else it's a tough question, I know. I, I
4: kind of disagree with Kansas though. I, be, only because I think that people would take it the wrong way as a commentary on America and if they learned that it was a UK band, I feel like that would be a big turnoff. Because I was almost a little ter- like hesitant when I started. I was like, wait, they're from the UK and they're talking all they're talking so much about America. I didn't really you know not that i am really that defensive over the over every i just didn't i was just confused i guess no
3: and exactly and that's what i said before like for some people that came up as well i remember at the time so yeah it's a, it's a, it's a interesting point
4: i mean the one i love is a pretty uh it's a good love song with a twist so i could see that i i'd stick with alone personally i just i really like that song that's probably my second favorite on the album i love i love the way he sings just the way, like my favorite lyric from that is the way he sings. I walked out of the silver mines, my pockets full of sand. <laughs> yeah, that's just, great. He just sings it like he's angry, like in Steel Town, like getting screwed over.
3: Yeah, and, and always... silver mines too. Silver mines. I mean, <laughs> that's like a big country lyric right there. Yeah,
4: yeah and just the way that he sings that, I, it it just it's so it's so angry. It's so. I don't know, you really feel for him, the way he sings that. I, I, I love that song. I could, see, I could understand why. I understand what Tim's saying about, you know, wanting to bring people in. but
2: It's interesting about Kansas that uh, they had the chance to release that as a single twice from No Place Like Home and the Buffalo Skinners, and they didn't do it either time. Although I think uh, when the time came for the Buffalo Skinners, I can kind of see the point that, okay, here's our new single, It was also on the previous album. Yes, it's it's new material. (laughs) It could be a little confusing, I guess, to some people, but uh, it it is a great song, and... uh I guess they never found it single-worthy for some reason. They they had two chances.
3: Well, my problem with Kansas as a single is is simply the length, and and this is what the problem I also had with Ships as as a single because mm. on on the surface, I mean, uh, you you think yeah, Ships it's a great single. You look at the album cut of that; it's it's almost six minutes long. Kansas is six and a half minutes. Now, yeah, they can yeah. cut these things, but I've I've always found that whenever you, especially with big country stuff, because big country is a band that their singles seem to have been edited more than any other band that I'm aware of. It's like, and Stewart has been on record saying that he always found it hard to write like a short single length type of song. And so invariably their singles would always be edited versions that, for me anyway i would listen to them and granted i was listening to them from the perspective of already having heard the long version but i would hear the single version and i would think this just doesn't work it's like the edit it's edited to be short enough for radio but it's just too they they, they can't you, this song just shouldn't be edited and i kind of feel that would be the case with kansas because it's just such a an album track to me just a ferocious track now now for me i'll i'll throw a curveball out here i was this just came to me the other day um of what my choice for single would have been in America, at least Um, I think seven ways probably would have been the best for the UK because it's got that big country feel and it's just such a catchy, catchy song. Um, For me though, I would have chosen in America, what are you working for? For, Number one, I I love that song. Um, It's, it's four minutes long, which is kind of pushing it for single, but it's still doable. Um, And it's got that to me, just that I, I totally agree with what tim was saying is that when you release a single you want at least back then um you want something that's really inclusive that's going to draw people in and everyone would have would have flocked to that line in that in the chorus you know now i see what i must see the poor do time the rich go free you keep the faith and they keep score is this what you are working for i mean that's a common theme that anyone can relate to and i i, I think that's kind of that song also has a little bit of the beginnings of some of the americanisms that had been creeping in and would continue to creep in even more so in Stewart's writing because there's almost like a, I don't want to say country really, but there is a little bit of a countryish vibe in that song. That's still very much a rock song, but it's maybe maybe the Neil Young influence is really coming through in that. But so that would have been my choice. But yeah, I alone um, is a song that uh, I'll get into this more in our deep dive. But I liked it at the time too, but it just never struck me as being like the right single choice for the band. But who knows? But uh, I, I think they could have could have maybe done a little bit better with some of those. I remember at the time, actually, um, because of the popularity of grunge, I remember at one point suggesting on the Big Country message board when Ian Grant would frequent there and band members would frequent there and answer you. I remember saying that All Go Together should have been the single in America because it, it's the one song that has more of that uh, grunge type of feel with the, the way it's sung and the guitars and it's a pretty relatable theme, and it's incredibly catchy. And he just replied to me like, "You got to be out of your mind." <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think it was just that one response. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, well, maybe I don't know what I'm doing." That
1: brings up something interesting I just discovered yesterday. Um, I was going through YouTube to see what I could find from that era, and there's a uh, there's a whole uh, one hour concert in Las Vegas that they did. Um, In that year. If you enter a big country in 1993 and maybe Las Vegas, you'll find it on YouTube easily. They opened with
3: uh, All Go Together. That's what they and, open with in America all the time. Yeah, yeah. It
1: it struck me as an odd choice to uh, to kick off you know a, a concert where you're supposed to feel good and yeah, all right. Here's <laughs> our band. We're all gonna
3: die. Well, you know, it takes you back to what Spina said in the past about the people getting into the chance uh, chorus sing along. It's like they don't think about. You know, there's, yeah, I've never felt so low. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah.
3: in that same concert, they play,
1: What Are You Working For? And it was really puzzling because Stewart introduced it as a song about growing up where they came from.
3: Oh, interesting.
1: And if you look at the lyrics, mm-hmm. they have nothing to do with um, with that environment, as far as I can tell.
3: Yeah, it's like a taxes type of song, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, you know, you you segue, I think, help us segue into the next topic very well. Let's talk about the Buffalo Skinners tour. And um, I'm sure, you know, I know not everyone here saw it, but I know we've all seen video clips of it. So, and I have a perspective of it from an American because it was the first time they'd been over here in quite some time. So Jason, did you see this tour? I'm assuming you did. And did you see it like multiple times? I'm curious what you thought about this version of big country, especially with Mark back on the drums.
5: Uh, yeah, I, I saw the the gig at the London Hammersmith Apollo, Odeon, or whatever it's called these days. Um, I believe it's in May '93, um, and I'm pretty sketchy about it. If I'm honest, it's a long time ago, but I seem to recall it sounded very, very powerful. And as you pointed out, it was a joy to see Mark back on the kit. I have to say, having seen um, the lineup with Chris Bell drumming, um no disrespect to Chris, good drummer, but to see my hero back on the kit of my favourite band was quite something. And if I remember rightly, Stuart did introduce him as I think it was Dr. Robotto or whatever he used to call him. <laughs> right. And you know, and it was lovely. It, it felt like he you know a returning a returning hero in my case. But I I'm very sketchy. I saw a lot of gigs. I was very fortunate to see the band quite a lot over that period from about sort of 90-ish through to 93 um and i i think my only prevailing memory of it was just how powerful it was the set was very much geared around buffalo skinners um but am I'm, I'm a pretty vague unfortunately so i can't offer much in that respect
3: no no problem that's great and did tim did you see them in america when they came through here
1: i uh, my first live experience with big country was on the journey tour
3: okay got it and i know Kara, you didn't see them but i did i saw them at the bayou and i've talked about this a little bit on the show before but a place called the bayou in washington dc it's a club that's no longer in existence a club that my old band played at which was really great when we played there because it was like wow big country played here and you two played there on their early tours and that kind of thing it was kind of like a mid mid-sized club um i can't think of how many it would have held but uh certainly not not huge not small but I remember finding that finding out about the show like just a couple of days before it was going to happen, it happened to just to see an ad for it in this paper. I mean there was really no promotion of either the album or the tour, and at the time not being a, not being a part of any big country community whatsoever I just remember thinking that I was the only fan left like that t-shirt except it was just I'm the only one left I mean I didn't know anyone else who liked big country I I would force the band on people and the girl I was dating at the time (laughs) I forced the band on her and she grew to like them but um I didn't know anyone else I remember thinking first of all I was ecstatic that they were going to be performing and I could see them but then I was thinking wow am i going to be the only one there i don't know anyone else who likes them i mean i don't want i don't want the band to be embarrassed by a terrible turnout i can't imagine a lot of people coming to see them but i went with my girlfriend at the time and another guy who was in my band and um the place was was packed i couldn't believe it this was on halloween night so it was a perfect place perfect time to see the band and um i just remember the thrill of of You know, you people in the UK who get to see them on every tour and have your choice of many different shows, this was the very first time I got a chance to see them. I was too young to see them during the Crossing era, and they never came here again. And now they were back in America trying to make a mark again. So this was like a religious experience for me. It was like a pilgrimage for me, and it was luckily not that far from where I lived at the time. So I just remember going in there and being – amazed and just just completely taking in the the whole aura of that place and seeing all the other big country fans i remember someone had a big poster of mark brisecki it was like a drum uh promo poster that he did and they were hanging it from the the balcony and just that little moment made me feel so happy because it was like i was connecting with these people who i knew felt the same way that i did about this and had no idea what to expect um but when the band came out as you said tim they opened up with "All Go Together." I'm looking at the sign set list I had from that night, um, and they came out. The first thing that Stewart said was, "Happy Halloween!" As you can see, we've come dressed as Big Country, and then they <laughs> and then they launched right into the opening moments of "All Go Together," and the place just went insane. And um, so they go into "All Go Together," then they go into "Kansas," then they did "Look Away." What Are You Working For, Chester's Farm, Wonderland, Pink Marshmallow Moon, Ships, Long Way Home, Alone, The One I Love, In A Big Country, came back for Chance and Lost Patrol, came back for a final encore with uh, Hey Hey My My, the Neil Young song, Into the Black. I I never was totally clear on what the actual title of that is. But um, they were just, I I mean, I know this is going to seem expected from a big country fan who's so much of one that he does a podcast about big country, but that really was the absolute best-sounding show I have ever seen before or since. I, I couldn't believe the clarity of – because so many times you see a live show that's as loud as that one was, and it's kind of muddy. And um, you just kind of take in the whole feel of the excitement, and you don't really necessarily appreciate all the, uh the audio quality. But th- this was so clear and crisp and yet so loud, and man, it was just great. Um. I remember at one point when Stewart did the, uh, the the guitar solo in Wonderland that he always does, I was close enough where I could come up and I patted him on the leg. <laughs> and uh, it was funny, Arlen Bartels, who's been on the show before, was telling me a story recently that, that he got up and put his hand on Stuart's leg for the entire duration of that solo. And I was like, what is this with us putting our hands on Stuart's leg? You know, But I had to tell him that I did almost the same thing. And it's just so bizarre. But uh, yeah, and after the show, we were about ready to leave – and my friend, who was in, it had been in my band. He said, "Why don't we wait? Maybe they'll come out." And I thought, "Okay, let's do that." And we waited outside, and sure enough, they came out. There were maybe twenty of us waiting for them. So, I mean, I got to meet them, talk with them. And Carrie, you brought up the red shoes. It's funny you brought that up because that Kate Bush album had just come out, hmm. and I had bought it. And I was, I thought, you know, I knew Stuart was a big Kate Bush fan, and I, I asked him. I, I said, um, I even tape recorded this if I can find it I'll play it on the show I had a tape rec- I, had a, I brought a tape recorder to the show to bootleg it and the show was so loud that you could hear nothing but just like distortion so the the, the music was worthless but I when I saw that they were coming out of the show I thought I would also record whatever conversation we might have <laughs> you know, like a, like a freak so um I, I just ta- started talking to Stuart about Kate Bush and asking him what it was like working with her and I, I remember he said uh, she smoked more dope than anybody I've ever seen in my life <laughs> really? and little things like that you know, people telling him about having seen the in a big country video on beavis and butthead and how much they liked that and he thought that was great yeah i mean it was just a magical night and they were incredible on that tour and a lot of people in america had finally the first chance to see them live and it was just a, a great show very very buffalo skinners heavy on the set um but i didn't mind at the time because i thought that album was worth it but, uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry that not everyone was able to see that show and that tour because it seemed like a band that was really just so at the top of their game and so excited, so hungry. And sadly, I think that was like, to me anyway, that was kind of the pinnacle of where they, they got in the original band. And at that point, it was kind of, you know, it kind of started to go downhill again and never fully recovered. But um, anyway, so that's that's my story of seeing them live. Great ending I mean, too. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, I know it was cool. But you know, you, you, you go ahead, Kara. Are we going to say something?
4: Yeah, you listen to without the aid of the safety net. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have.
3: Yes, it's, it's the same thing as there you, exactly.
4: It's 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 not. Um, I only have maybe three or four of their live albums, but it's it's absolutely the best one. I mean they they just sound so good and yep. so together and every every video that I've watched around that time period that's the way I feel every time I watch a video around there. it just they just look so in tune with each other and and it shows with the music,
3: yeah, definitely, and you could tell that they were just so excited to be with a label again that seemed to believe in them and gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do and to do what they thought they should be doing and um you know it showed in the performances and the music and and Stewart, by the way, too, he looked awesome back then, he was so fit and like. Yeah, I don't know. He, he looked, I think, he just looked ready for battle during that time period. But uh, yeah, it was great. Shit!
2: So I was just going to mention the, the style of the album versus uh, the rest of the, the catalog. And this goes back to something that Kara was saying earlier about buying The Crossing and uh, The Skinners at the same time. I think uh, if you're going to look at it a little critically, the weakness of Skinner's is really that the assault never ends. Uh, I mean, you you get a kind of a break with chips, but that's song number eight. So you've had seven songs of relentless sonic attack leading up to that point, and then after that song, it continues pretty much till the end. So the the album is a bit one-dimensional. If you're gonna point to something, it's that. But on the other hand, what could be a weakness has kind of become a strength. Because it is so relentless and so forceful and crisp and powerful and uh, it really lifts you up musically. So uh, I was just curious, you know, obviously we all like this album a lot, so we, we, um, we see it more as a strength, as a weakness. But do you think this is something that possibly hurt the album at all or is it purely a strength?
3: Uh, well, for me, I, I think it's – at this point, looking back on the whole thing, I, I view it as a strength because at the time, that album really shared and voiced my frustration as a fan of big country because I had waited so long for them to return to and, – and again, it's not like I didn't love aspects of Peace in Our Time and No Place Like Home. And, and over time, I've grown to love them even more in, in some ways. But back then, I was disappointed in that direction, and I was so frustrated. I wanted that, that – big country drug to come back again and um because it, there was nothing like it to me from those first three albums and i wanted to feel that way again and i'm not going to say the buffalo skinners totally did for me what steel town did but it was it was pretty damn close and so that was the frustration i was feeling as a fan like when are they gonna just just let loose again and mm-hmm. so they did and i was ready for them to do it for 12 songs i was fine with that because i had that much pinup um, <laughs> frustration and aggression and whatever you want to call it. Ready, but yeah, looking back on it now, yes, it's an album that that uh, it goes full tilt constantly. And and if you're not in the mood to hear that all twelve songs at a time, then maybe that that would be a weakness. But for me, it's for me, it's a strength and a sta- one of the standouts. Anybody else want to jump in? Feel free.
5: I I agree. with fine. I think it, it's it's full on and it's relentless and um. That's not what I got into big country. That's not the reason I got into big country uh, and their music. I like the light and shade. I like the, the spaces. And I missed Mark's drumming, if I'm honest. I think that was one of the main things. That, uh, Simon's an incredible drummer, and, and the power is evident throughout. But it just it just needed a couple of more sublime moments, I think. And, and Ships, as you say, was track eight. and And even that was full-on um compared to the the previous album's version and i i think that was my overbiding memory of the whole album really looking back was it's just it's the album that rocks you know and and whereas the following album why the long face has a lot of light and shade it has a lot of textures and flavors and this one just felt like wham it was done as you said it could have easily been recorded in a very short space of time and just bashed out not that it was lacking quality, but just I think it just lacked lacked dynamics between the tracks personally. But um yeah, yeah,
2: no, play no. Um, Wide Long Face is a good uh, thing to bring up because I see them as twin albums. The main difference being that uh, the Buffalo Skinners is a little bit more one dimensional, if you will, or full tilt rock on attack, whereas the Wide the Long Face do have the light and shade and. Uh, those who listen to our deep dives know how much i love that album but uh, you know in an in an ideal world you treat each song as a deck of cards of those two albums and you, you mix them and you get the the Buffalo Skinner's track amongst more of the wide long face i see them really as twin albums but one has more powerful uh, playing and the other one has more light and shade so uh, with those two albums together i'm happy with the uh, with Buffalo Skinners, I think over time Big Country was never my go-to band for full-out rock music they were the softer option in my record collection this is one thing to keep in mind for me that uh, for, for other people they were probably the rock alternative so we come to the band definitely a bit with different expectations I would suspect
1: For me, there are a couple of weak points on the album and uh, you know, weak is relative whenever you're talking about one of our, our favorites, but uh, I think the um, the track arrangement could have been a little better. Um, we have, for example, "Long Way Home," "Selling of America," and "Kansas" all in a row—three songs about essentially the same thing, but different aspects of it. And every time I listen to the album in order, I I kind of get the urge to skip over "Selling of America" because you know, "Long Way Home" for me is a flyover song kansas is a flyover song selling of america is kind of like the the pause between the two and uh i usually just listen to it because i know what's coming next um but it's sort of like okay here's a here's a weird analogy you're watching a godzilla movie (laughs) in the beginning the first half of the movie there's a monster appearance and you're hyped and you're, you want to see more. And then there's that long stretch before the next time the monster appears. And every time I watched that Godzilla movie, I thought, couldn't I just skip to the next monster scene? <laughs> so Selling of America to me is, you know, uh, it's got its own merits, but it, it seems badly placed between those Dude. two giants.
2: You impatient bastard. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it is amazing when you think about it. I was When I was listening to it this week preparing for this, I was like, because I, I absolutely adored Selling of America, but I, but when I listened to it and then I thought, holy crap, Kansas is going to follow this. <laughs> you know, it's like it just never ends up, that never lets up. But yeah, good point. I think points. my
1: opinion of it would be better if it, it were, were in a different position on the album or yeah. if it had come out as a B-side.
3: Well, I'll explain my love for that at some point here briefly, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah I, I see that point completely. Yeah.
1: It, c- and, and secondary that uh, I still don't get Chester's Farm. I mean, musically it's strong, but the it's just sort of a comic book story, and I don't really know why it's there or what it's about. Uh, the references—I don't
4: just, get why. it's... Oh, sorry.
1: It, it, it just seems very specific for reasons that I don't understand. And again, if it was a single, I would probably like it more. And uh, if the album finished with Marshmallow Moon, I think it would be perfect.
4: Yeah, I agree with the with the closure part. I, I don't I don't understand why it's the closure. It, the, Tim's right. It doesn't make any sense. If it's if it feels so specific, it feels it, it feels like a story, I, you don't usually end with a story right. like that.
3: You're kind of looking for something that sums it all up and yeah. ties it all together. I, I instead,
4: agree. Of, instead of introducing something completely new.
3: I think musically it, it kind of fits because it's, it's, it sounds like a closer to me musically. But yeah, I agree lyrically. I think, um, and we talked about this on our Facebook group, our facebook group um those of you who aren't a member of it you should join up some interesting discussion but this that that song and we're getting off on a bit of a tangent but that song actually was spawned from a tony butler song called the cenotaph and first of all just that word the cenotaph i mean (laughs) that just sounds like a big country song to me it's like perfect and that was a song about world war one um combat which again is a is a subject that you would think would be very apt for big country and i could see i could actually see that song working better with tony's original lyrical idea rather than the uh the whole bugs gone wild type of thing at chester's farm which i i never never really enjoyed that story either to be honest but i did i did like the music of the song but yeah but
2: i also think people are just uh exhausted at the end of the album because it's been such a battering for Eleven songs straight and here's one more. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so I think uh it, it would have been nice to end it on for example, Pink Marshmallow Moon, but I agree musically Chester's farm is a great closer.
3: Shot! Simon Phillips coming aboard on this album. It's the only album in the big country catalog that Mark Berzecki doesn't play on. And uh Jason, I, I thought you made a really interesting point that you missed Mark Strumming and I, I can totally relate to that. Uh but from a musician standpoint, I mean, can you re- can you elaborate a little bit about what you think, um, what you think was missing from the drumming from your standpoint, if if anything? I know I know a lot of you guys might think that it was fantastic, and I think it was fantastic too. But I can also understand Jason's point about the differences between what was going on there and Mark Verzecchi.
5: I mean, Mark Mark's drumming has always been. He's he's the drummer that I that I got inspired by there's no there's no two ways about that he's he's at the heart of everything i do on a drum kit these days really so i was really quite upset when mark left the band or or you know wasn't involved anymore and obviously you know other drummers came and went and it never was quite the same and when simon got involved he's plainly i think mark alluded to this in his interview he he, he played it in a very mark way there's no doubt about that he he played um, very sympathetic to the way Mark would have played it. But there's a difference, a subtle difference in the way they both play. And Simon's a little more, in, in technical terms, on this album, he, he seems to be very much on the beat, very, very direct drumming, which no doubt is what the guys wanted. Um, whereas Mark, I, I would love to hear what Mark would have done with this album. It's, it's one of those conundrums that will always bug me I, I, I feel maybe maybe that the the dynamics may have been greater if mark had played on it um, and I'm not taking anything away from Simons drumming because the man's a, a, a you know he's a powerhouse drummer and and an incredible drummer as well Um But that's one angle of big country that is very, very precious to me is Mark's input into the band. Because, as I say, you know, everything I do nowadays is just I I, I'm talking about Mark's work as well as big country outside of big country. uh, Love by the cult. He plays on most of the tracks on that album. And again, you know, just superb, albeit simpler drumming. Um, Just, you know, he's my drum hero. And and it was a little disappointment to not have him on there. Um, that said, I do know that, that um, Simon Phillips heard the demos once before he played, right? <laughs> played. That's right. He heard them. I think he said he he was he came back over to the UK and he heard them once and went in and put them down. <laughs> as you said, in six days, which is an incredible feat considering the power involved with this album. So I'm I'm going to doff my cap in simon's direction as well but as i said the the one the one bugbear with me would be i i would love to have a time machine and then go back and put mark in that studio at r.a.k and and hear what that would have sounded like as well um and as i said i think it would have created a slightly more different dynamic but um you know we'll never know so there's no point in me pondering that too much
3: well i remember when i saw them live being really excited to hear what mark would do and if he would just copy simon completely or if he would add his own Markisms and he kind of did a little bit of both really uh, but uh but so Tim what do you what do you think of the drumming on this album Simon Phillips uh, versus Mark Brzecki and versus probably isn't fair but you know what I mean like uh was that something that he, that even went across your radar at the time or or, or how do you think of the drums on no, this album? It, it really
1: didn't um the the drums to me sound as good on this album as Mark's do on all the albums uh, you know, absent the uh, the tom-toms and the flourishes that, that are all of his own. Um, honestly speaking, though, I think the simpler drum style that we got from Simon left a, uh, a bigger canvas to be filled up by the guitars. And uh, sometimes when I listen to this, I get the feeling that before they went in, they all looked at each other and said, You know, we can make 150 different sounds with these guitars and we're going to do all of them. (laughs) And then what we got was a guitar album with some uh, drums holding it up, which is fine with me. Obviously, it would have been different. I don't know if it would have been better with Mark. Um, We would have a little more uh, variation in the drums to talk about. But it is what it is and I love it for what it is.
3: Great. What about you, Kara? Do you do you have any thoughts about the drumming on this album and and how it might stand apart from Mark's drumming? I mean, does does it mean anything different to you that Mark does not play on this album?
4: Not really. Um I'm more of a guitar person. That's what I pay attention to the most. So, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to go with Tim and saying it didn't make like too much of a difference.
3: Gotcha. No, that makes sense. But one thing Jason said that I wanted to reiterate, and when something Bruce said I was I was reading some of the stuff uh, about this album, Bruce said that Simon learned the songs the morning he started recording. So I mean, when you listen to the intricacies, and yeah, it is simple and it is on the beat and it is I, I guess you could say straightforward in some respects, but there are also a lot of intricacies in that in those parts. I mean, he's just a he's just a beast. And when we interviewed uh, Bruce Watson a while back, and we actually went through every single Big Country album, uh, when we were talking about uh, Buffalo Skinners, I remember he said that Simon came up with that part at the beginning of The One I Love, that kind, when it kind of fades up on this weird uh, drum part played on the Octobons. Bruce just said, we couldn't figure out what he was doing. It, it was it was so hard to figure out where to where we were supposed to come in. It was just such a intricate part, <laughs> and it, it's kind of interesting that they never recreated that live or never tried to. And it probably wouldn't have fit the version of the song live anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, it, the guy's talent is just unbelievable, and he's worked with so many different people, and to be able to come in and just do that and and have it sound like you were drumming for the band for years is just incredible to me but yeah you know it's interesting what jason says because i i kind of feel a similar way that there is something about mark's drumming that is and it's not a matter of who's better or who's who's worse it's not that kind of thing it's just it's just somebody's personality there's something about mark's absence there that it doesn't detract from the album for me but it, it does make it seem a just a tiny bit less Big Country when I think about it because there are just some things that I think he probably might have done differently. But the thing that I always always struck me about Simon is that it just struck me that he was more of a heavy hitter than Mark. Um, and maybe that's what the album needed more of because while Mark can let loose with the best of them and, and does so, just – I've never heard – The ferocity of drumming that I heard on Buffalo Skinners and for me uh, I just got a a few more questions about this album left and one of them is going to be like what your favorite moments are so I'm going to kind of spoil one of mine but uh, the end like the last 30 seconds of Kansas and the drumming on that it just goes into warp speed it's just unbelievable he's got double kick going he's got all kinds of things going and It's just just incredible drumming. I've never heard that kind of power in drumming before on a big country record. And it almost kind of adds a little bit to just the ferocity of that song. Again, it's not a matter of anyone being better than anyone else. It's just totally different styles. I would prefer to have Mark on everything, but um, it, it brought in, it. I think it just brought out the uh, just the the balls of this album a little bit more. <laughs> if you pardon my uh, pardon my my uh, comment there, but it's fine. What are what are your thoughts about Simon playing? Does
2: it? And that's exactly what I would say. Balls. Uh, we need more balls. And I think the album doesn't need more balls because it got exactly what it needed. And uh, I heard this story, too, that you mentioned, that Simon came in and literally listened to the song once and let it rip. Now, I always thought that was kind of an exaggeration, but uh, that it's close enough to the truth that, uh, you know, why ruin a good story with facts? Um, Clearly, he was involved. Like the example from The One I Love tells that he was involved and did arrangements and uh, added stuff like to the end of Kansas, like you mentioned. He was involved, and he was... uh, even though he was only there for six days, they certainly did the most of that. Uh, two songs a day. <laughs> Not pretty, that's pretty good. But uh, I'll be guilty of saying that I actually didn't miss Mark on this album. And I was glad he didn't drum on this album. Simply because this album needed balls. It needed a hard hitter. It needed someone to kick ass. And uh, that's how I felt about this for the, for the longest time, really. And it's only in recent years I started wondering, well, how would it have been? And I never asked myself that question back in the day, because this album was exactly what it uh, needed to be. It didn't lack anything. It really was that hard hitter. It was that rock album. But on the other hand, this goes back to the point I had about uh, Light and Shade. Simon doesn't contribute a whole lot of Light and Shade. Mark might have. So if you're going to look at that as a weak point, that the album is a bit one-dimensional, Mark could have helped address that. But again, if you're going to look at the style of the album and its ferocity as a strength, then certainly Simon contributes towards that. So you can kind of go both ways on that one. And uh, it's it's an interesting thing. But uh, the proof is in the pudding. We We did get to hear Mark play these songs on without the aid of a safety net, and especially the two-CD expanded version of that, which has more songs. You hear quite a lot of songs from the Buffalo Skinners. So you can kind of hear Simon do them and then Mark do them and make up your, uh, your own mind about what works for you. So all in all, I'm pleased with how it worked out, but it, it is one of those what-ifs in big country lore.
3: We have to go back to the, kind of the mindset that we had as fans back then. Um, remember that there were so many drummer issues going on at the time i mean the last album mark played on was no, he did play on no place like home but after after a uh, piece in our time came out and when no place like home came out we i remember at the time there was like talk that mark had left the band of course we've already gone over that kind of thing but there was talk that he might not even play on the album and i remember finally when he did play on the album i thought great mark is on this but then i remember listening to it and thinking this just isn't the mark brzecki i remember it's 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 like they they asked him to tone tone it down and i felt like that whole album was like a toned down big country including the drums and then of course they went out on tour for that album and they had uh chris bell yeah and who who's a guy that he was he was fine you know but he wasn't in mark brzecki's world or universe if you ask me um he was just a you know, stand in drummer. And so by the time the Buffalo Skinners rolled around and I was reading in one of the fanzines too, that there was really, um, a question that uh, whether Mark would even be on the tour. So we didn't know what Mark's status was. And I think many of us had almost, uh, had almost accepted the fact that Mark may not ever come back to big country. And mm-hmm. I remember at the time kind of going through that, like thinking, wow, can I still really feel the same about this band? Because there are so many, Their four parts are so important. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that kind of—it's—it's it's hard to look back at that album and just think straightforwardly, Simon, Mark. But at the time, we weren't even expecting Mark to be on the album, and it was kind of like, you know, we didn't know what was coming. So, exactly,
2: yeah. and we yeah. got a good drummer out of it, which was the the most important thing. We we none of us wanted Chris Bell to drum on a big country studio album. <laughs> no, that, that that is a nightmare scenario. Let's let's be honest. And So, and- so instead, we got Simon, and and that's great, and. Uh, <laughs> We didn't want Mark to come and play all this intricate stuff on the hi-hat. That would have been totally wrong for the Buffalo Skinners. And that's what I thought back then. But, of course, he wouldn't have. He would have adapted and played what the album needed, albeit in Mark's own style. Right. Right.
3: Well one one funny line I read in one of the fanzines, it was like a Bruce Bruce was keeping a diary of the recording of of songs leading up to the Buffalo Skinners and working with Chris Sheldon and he's in, actually the recording of the Buffalo Skinners and he's talking about um, Simon coming in and playing. He says Chris Sheldon looks at looks over at me and says, That guy's a little better than Pat Ahern, isn't he? <laughs> 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 and you could just sense the sarcasm and the smiling and uh, yeah. So I' <laughs> See, if anyone had to replace Mark, it, Simon Phillips was probably the only choice. And uh, you know, we got two of the best drummers in the world playing with Big Country, so that's great. Absolutely. Well, then, we're, we don't have too much left here, um, but I do want to ask um, you guys each to to tell me what you think is your favorite moment, and you could even say maybe favorite couple moments. It could be like a song itself, or it could be a moment in a song. I mean, what, Jason? Start with you. Is there is there anything on this album that really stands out for you? As when you think of the Buffalo Skinners, this is what you think of. I,
5: I to be honest, the, the track that I always put into playlists is Pink Marshmallow Moon. It's it's my favorite by Long Chalk. Um, I think it's just the elation. There's a real sense of of uplift in that song the whistling the whole sort of um uh, look away style beat you know that sort of six eight feel to it 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 just to me as it was said earlier on you know it would be a good way to end the album it was a, it was a real positive song to me um as indeed i you know the one i love is is also it's it's a, an odd love song you know there is a twist to it but it's got a sense of joyousness to it um and I think there are sort of three or four songs that, that make make my shortlist every time, and there are three or four that that will never feature in my favourite list. So it's a real split split opinion for me this this album. But uh, yeah, Pink Marshmallow Moon, it's it's I, I love it. It's it's up there in my in my top fifteen songs, big country songs for sure. Oh,
3: fantastic! Great choice. I love it too. What about you, Tim? What, what's what's your moment or song or uh, you know on this album that really? stands out for you?
1: Well musically I have to agree. Marshmallow Moon is uh, is a real standout. Um for me in particular because I've always loved songs that uh that are built around bass and just and have a, a high end range of sound combined with that big heavy, you know, uh cycle. And um, you know, for example, my my first favorite Beatles song was Come Together for the same reason. And every time Marshmallow Moon spins up, I just Sit back in my chair and enjoy it um, lyrically, there are two moments that that always stand out for me. One of them is in Kansas with the line, "What did you do in the war? Yeah, well, what did you do with the peace um, you know i uh I brought up the the Reagan and Bush administrations before they they had a huge impact on me because that's that stretch of twelve years is when I uh, really matured into an adult and it seemed like every challenge that was issued to that mindset was answered yet with a variation of this question what did you do in the war or what did you do with the war or or what's your value if you never fought in a war and I was I I found it very uh, reinforcing very empowering to finally have a response to that Uh, and the second one is uh, a lyric that surprises me every time but is more relevant than ever especially when we think about what's going on today in, in Flint, Michigan. And that is from all go together, the line, nothing will, is done for all of this until most to blame is most at risk. Oh, yeah.
3: What a great line.
1: Yeah. And, and the Flint situation sums that up perfectly. The people who are responsible for what's happening there, were not at risk at all, and they are the most to blame. And we can apply that to so many different things that we see. <clears throat>
3: Fantastic. What about you, Kara? What What are some of your standout moments?
4: I would say uh, the guitar solo in "The Selling of America." Uh, that just gets me. That that has like the bagpipey feel, but without being like too overtly eboey
3: Damn it! You stole from me.
4: Sorry, <laughs> uh, I have a second one. I won't go into that, so you can no, go into no, that. no.
3: Please do. Please no,
4: do. no. I won't because I like you're coming from more of a music background. no come
3: on I was just I was just kidding you I please tell me No, I
4: seriously have nothing else to say (laughs) other than that That I really like the guitar solo uh and I think that's like I guess that's where you get like the throwback feel to the cross like that's the that's the part where I really feel like it's a throwback to the crossing and the steel town so I really like that um but something I also really like that hits me more is probably like most of the lyrics in winding wind um I actually uh Well, I guess I'll say this. I'll explain it. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever had like yearbooks in high school. Sure did. Uh, Well, it's more of a thing for the seniors, right? The people who are graduating. So I don't know if they do this in Europe, but you can get like a quote under your senior picture because the senior pictures are really nice because, again, the yearbooks are for the people who are graduating mostly. So you get a really – you get a bigger portrait when you're a senior. And you usually dress up and then they have the quote underneath. And I almost, I almost went with the lyric, everybody's got a soul to sell. Everybody's got a tale to tell. All about the things that might have been blown away on the winding wind. Mm. But I felt like that was way too cynical. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sure it probably was. So I actually ended up going with, um, to all the dreams of fire, the furnace, give all your heart and soul. That's a good but one too. Yeah, but that, that one still like hits me and the lyric, uh, and I will walk with giant men at peace among their feet. I, I just think that Winding Wind is just fantastic lyrically. The way Stewart sings it. I,
3: he stole I, from me again. I can't believe it.
4: Oh, my gosh. I'm
3: <laughs> not kidding. I
4: love it. <laughs> wow.
3: I'm totally not kidding. No, that's great. I completely agree
4: yeah so that that's something that song I know the liner notes from uh Bruce and the Masters version says that that song was kind of weakened by they weren't they didn't rehearse it a lot, but that i I would go with that's my favorite song, on the album, even though it is a little weak musically, and even somebody like me who isn't a musician can tell, but i still I just love the way he sings it. I love the way Stewart sings most of the album, but that song those lyrics especially. They get me a lot. Oh, that's awesome.
3: Well, you already know a couple of mine. Um, I'll just throw them out here. But yeah, I have to say, "Selling of America" again because when I heard that moment that you referenced, and I think it's probably the same moment when they go, it, it's it's kind of after they hear come the dollar bombers part. Yeah, yeah, And they go into a little solo there, but then right after that solo, they go into that. And you're right; it's the bagpipe guitars, and it's 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 like the building toms, the bagpipe guitars, and. It, I'm not ashamed to admit this. (laughs) When I heard that for the first time, I just welled up with tears because that's how important that sound was to me. And I hadn't heard it for so so long. And when I heard that song and heard that part in Selling of America, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I've waited so long to hear this again. That's what I loved about the band. That's what I want to hear back. So that was a big moment for me. Um, I, I mentioned the moment in Winding Wind with the, the three haws back to back. is still my, probably my favorite moment on the album, maybe rivaling the selling of America. Maybe sometimes that is. But yeah, when you mentioned the Giant Men line, um, that I remember reading that lyric because when I bought this album, I bought it. At a, I drove like an hour and a half to buy this album at an import shop, <laughs> and I had to drive home to listen to it because I didn't have a working CD player in my car at the time. So when I got the album, I remember coming out of the CD shop and opening it up and looking at it and reading the liner notes and the lyrics, and when I saw lyrics like uh, – the cattle call for example from all fall together all, all go together i was like yeah big country should be singing about cattle this is great they're okay. back <laughs> and then i remember reading that line that you referenced i will walk with giant men at peace among their feet and i thought that is a classic big country lyric i can't wait to hear this song um so there yeah, that was a moment and the the only other moment that i'll bring up is um a musical moment that i love uh, one of my favorite tracks on the album is all go together and there's a moment this is kind of a piddly thing but I'll, I'll play this on the show too but there's a moment at the end where the where they're singing the chorus over and over again and the drums change up into this little swing type of thing and simon starts playing this really cool hi hat part explain it but that that just that just gets me every time it's so great and it's like totally changes the feel of the song even though they're playing the exact same part and singing the exact same part and uh i just love it so there are a lot of great moments on this album for me um and uh yeah it's fine did you mention yours yet
2: i didn't but i can um i i kind of have um i'll I'll mention two different things where one thing is that there are uh, there are some themes on this album where one the theme seems to be about, uh, like the, what are you working for? Uh, selling off America, going more into that, the corporate world and the political world. Uh, but there's also a very personal side. And especially, I think there are three songs that the lyrics could just have been ripped out of Stuart's diary, which is uh, seven waves, the one I love and pink marshmallow moon. I see those as very personal songs. And, uh, that's uh, that those are going to be very interesting to dissect when we we get to the next episode, and uh, difficult to dissect. But uh, I'll I'll point out those because I think um, until then, you know, we would have personal lyrics from Stuart from time to time. But I think this album really signaled a, a different level of personal lyrics because it's very hard to listen to those songs and not keep in mind his personal situation at the time and what was happening. So that, um, that kind of thing is a highlight, if I can just be a little sweeping and include all of those songs uh, in that. And the other thing I was going to mention is that they recorded a whole bunch of songs, and I think the three strongest songs of this entire time wasn't on the album. And I'm talking about Eastworld, Never Take Your Place and the Buffalo Skinners, the title track. Those are three amazing songs and you gotta wonder they're not on the album they they didn't have room for them and that just boggles my mind and uh, (laughs) it says something about the quality of the album because it's not like the album has bad songs there's not a weak one on this bunch which is why this album has the status it rightly should have yeah but when you have outtakes like these three songs that just makes you realize the the bar and uh, the, the quality there and the luxury problem the band had
3: well that's a great point and that brings us to the first of my last two questions that I want to pose to the group. I know we've been going a long time here guys. We're gonna wrap it up here, but I got two questions left. Uh the first one is dealing with these b-sides and i don't want to go into like each b-side and sly and i've kind of done that already on their b-side show and we talked about it in the past but if you if you can just talk generally about the crop of b-sides for this album and those would be and i'm talk- just talking about original songs but if you want to mention i know tim you want to mention rocking the free world probably definitely if you want to mention those two that's great but what what did you think of of in general of the b-sides and then kind of take that into whether you think the song, The Buffalo Skinners, should have been on this album or not and why it wasn't. Um, and just to let just at the outset, I'll say that when we talked to Bruce, um, the reason for it, in his words, was that he thought The Buffalo Skinners song was another ballad and he said we already had a ballad on the album in Ships and we just didn't want another one on the album and it just didn't seem to fit. So talk about whether you think it would have fit and I guess whether you think the song... What, what do you think think of the song in general and if you want to throw any other buffalo skinners era b-sides in the comments that's great too so i mean jason let's uh, let's start with you i mean what what are your thoughts on the b-sides from this era and then the song the buffalo skinners i mean do you think that's something that would have fit on the album or do you agree that it just didn't even though the title obviously it <laughs> works um it just didn't have the right musical feel
5: I think uh, Buffalo Skinner's title track would have fit on the album if there was another track similar to that that would have balanced it out. And and it could have well gone in that sort of near-the-end phase. I think it's almost it could have summed things up. totally agree that it's not in the same style as the rest of the tracks, and I believe that's what they wanted, was a a cohesive piece of work, and and, and it wouldn't have necessarily added to that. But I think it's a beautiful song. I really do... Um, and Eastworld is is an incredible song. I was very fortunate to see that song played live or hear it played live by Caswell Club when J.J. Um, Gilmore was in the band. Oh, nice. And it was quite something. I was right at the front and I sang along to practically every track they played that night. But that's that, I think they opened with that song. Um, and again, given given the full production treatment that obviously it was it was a demo it was a b-side but if it was if it was included in the sessions for the album i i think that would have been a shoe-in uh for the album itself but i I understand the reasons for it not being there but that that would be my standout b-side um from from this this particular album i think by a mile
3: well you know what's funny I agree with you um when we talked to Bruce a number of episodes ago he said they actually did do a version with Simon Phillips of that song and he said it just didn't it just d- didn't work it wasn't working and for some reason they thought that the uh the drum machine was better suited to that song for some reason and I kind of can see what what they mean by that and we talked about it at the time but I would still love to hear whatever they did with Simon Phillips apparently they did try that song with him on drums and just decided that it wasn't working so I would love to hear that. I, know, I me would too. love to yeah, hear that. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, so Kara, what are your thoughts on, on the B-sides and Buffalo Skinners and its, its non-inclusion on this album?
4: Well, I did get the album that had the B-sides because I got it in 2007. Uh So, I kind of do consider them to be part... Obviously, they're not actually part of the album. I think they're great. Uh... Jeez, oh, i could absolutely see why buffalo skinners can't fit on the album but i could have seen why east world it, it's unfortunate it didn't work out because i think that would have been a great song yeah maybe maybe it didn't also like since it's east world it's about the east maybe that didn't fit with the theme too
3: I think you're right, and I was just thinking that because it it does have more of a European flair to it, whereas so many of the songs on the album seem to be America actually,
4: I was thinking more oriental
3: oh interesting okay
4: um well, because uh the lyrics like uh, about uh toys Japanese. like cheap toys yes yes well, and um the missile for a god thing uh that lyric kind of I mean, you know in the past. I mean you know watching a documentary about North Korea they're so obsessed with uh creating uh nuclear missiles, and you know their way they're they're very um i don't I don't know it just it just brings up it just makes me think of that area a little bit. yeah, I know
3: exactly what you're saying that that, that makes sense, yeah. No doubt. So
4: that didn't fit in with their criti- that, you know, their album was criticizing America a lot.
3: Yep, good points. What about you, Tim? Um, I love the B-sides,
1: uh, but I don't think all of them would have been uh, a perfect fit for the album. Uh, specifically, um, Dragging My Name and Never Take Your Place seemed to come from a different stylistic uh, approach. Um... I I would have liked to hear Buffalo Skinners at the end. I think it would have been uh, an interesting way to go out instead of Chester. Um, we already talked about that, though. Um, the The only problem is that if Buffalo Skinners was on the Buffalo Skinners album, then the name the album would, by default, be named after that song. And I think the focal point, or, or rather the uh, the focus, would have been stolen away from the other songs. I think it works better if you apply this title to the whole body of work and uh, the numerous songs that have a a political outlook to them. I think Buffalo Skinner's sums each of those songs up in uh, a a really interesting and thoughtful way. Um, Good point. Beyond that, I think the the one other song I would have liked to hear on the album is I Am a Small Republic.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say the same one. It's so interesting.
1: I've never heard a, a, a lyric from the viewpoint of a nation before. Right. And, uh, and, and and some of the twists and turns in that story are just fascinating. And especially the, uh, the lead-in, the vocal lead-in is so unusual for Big Country. But I think maybe, again, that would have set it stylistically apart from the rest of the songs. And maybe it was better as a B-side. Uh, but Eastworld absolutely should have been on there.
3: Yeah, those are great points. And it's funny you mentioned that about I Am a Small Republic. Um, I was I was reading, uh, again, some of these older fanzines, and before the album came out, there was a there was a quote from Ian talking about the album. And he said something about there were songs like The Storm and Pearlman, like epics on that, that they were working on. And I was thinking, well, what epics are on the Buffalo Skinners? There's nothing like that. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I Am a Small Republic is very much like that because it starts with that – uh, Ebo thing happening in the beginning, very storm esque. And then it's, it is like an Epic song, um, in the tradition of old big country epics. And yeah, it's, it's so funny. I mean, the, the only big country would write a song with lyrics about, um, the, the singer of the song being a small Republic and how that a nation grows. I mean, one of the things I love about them and what set them apart, but, um, yeah, I mean, as for me, uh, mimicking a lot of what you guys have already said, um, uh, so I'll just jump right into Buffalo Skinner's the song I, I too f- agree with Jason that I, just, I don't know if it quite fits but yet there are times when I think it might have been a nice closer maybe I don't know one of the things that always hit me is that if you notice Chester's Farm ends on like this big guitar chord and it just kind of drones on as, this, as it fades out and Buffalo Skinner's the song begins with a guitar chord droning up and I remember hearing those, and I always was thought, did they, use, did they mean to have those two go back-to-back back at some point and then just decided it wasn't going to work? And um, I've never actually put them together to check that out, so maybe I'll do that on this show and I'll play it. from from Bruce's email to me a couple of days ago about these b-sides because we were talking privately about what b-sides what original songs were were from this period and obviously the ones we thought were uh, were the ones that we've mentioned never take your place East world small Republic um, and dragon my name was another one that I had put out there because to me it, it was listed on one of those um, Compilations as being an AudioCraft demo, and a lot of these demos were recorded at a place called AudioCraft, and it sounds like the same drum machine to me, and it sounds like something that was recorded at that time, and I always thought it came from that that period. So I, I put those questions to Bruce, and here's what here was his response. He says, uh, "Right, let's have a look at these questions. All demos were recorded at AudioCraft Services in Dunfermline, along the road from Sound Control in Elgin Street." Basically, our friend Alan Short's rehearsal rooms. I borrowed Pete Brown's, the legendary Joe Brown's son, Cascam 24-track desk and wired it to my 8-track Fostex quarter-inch tape deck. Um, Stewart programmed his Elise's drum machine for his songs, and I programmed my Atari computer with Steinberg software for mine. They were linked by using Track 8 on Fostex for SMPTE code. (laughs) He's getting into it here. Um, And he says, the songs on your list that are wrong are dragging my name and possibly never take your place. And that one really surprised me. And he said, they were recorded later, I think, but I would have to do detective work on that. And I asked him about Pan American Irish Girl as well, which I was pretty sure was not from this time period, but I asked it. He said, that is that is not part of that session either. And then he said, Tony had programmed a Baba O'Reilly-style intro on synth for what became Chester's Farm, but we didn't use it for the album version. And then he went into the other thing that I've already mentioned about the uh, machines breaking down. So I thought it was interesting that he, he didn't think Never Take Your Place came from that period, when it, when in fact it was literally a B-side on the alone CD CD single. So I don't know what the deal is there, but uh, anyway, so some of the, qu- some questions still remain, I guess. Shot! All right. So I guess my final question for you guys is this one. Um, where do you rank the Buffalo Skinners in your favorite big country albums? Where does it rank? And Tim, you've already mentioned it, but um, feel free to say it again. In fact, I'll, I'll start with you, Tim.
1: Number one.
5: Yep.
3: Number one with
1: a bullet.
5: Gotcha. Jason, what about you? It, it probably hovers around five, six, or seven, depending on my mood. But it's it's in the lower, sort of mid to lower half of, of the uh, the canon of work.
3: Okay, cool. Some differing, definitely differing viewpoints here. Kara, where do you rank it?
4: Solid number three. Okay. I have it behind uh, Steel Town and The Crossing, but... I, it this is on a, that's like a new development for me. I think in the past year, when I bought I bought the 1993 uh, release in a CD store, and I just started playing it, and I was like, "Wow, I really like this album. I like it a lot. <laughs> I guess it's my third favorite album now." <laughs> so I really didn't think about it that much before, but I really really enjoy it now.
3: Fantastic, Svein, What about you? Number four. Fantastic. Look at this, Svein and I in, in agreement. I, I put it at number four for me as well. There's, there's still nothing that can unseat the uh the trilogy for me. But um Buffalo Skinners probably came the closest to getting in that in the in the line of those albums. But uh yeah, I put it at number four. Strong number four. And um all right, well that's it. Well look Guys, we've been talking for like three hours, basically, on this subject, and I, th- I feel like we could continue. There's still <laughs> many things to talk about with this album, um, but we should probably wrap it up here, so I guess... Well, it, good
4: thing you'll have a deep dive.
3: Yeah, good thing we'll have another episode <laughs> or five yeah, <laughs> on this album, but uh, look, I really appreciate all you guys joining, and I know it's it's hard when we've got five people, every t- everyone trying to share their opinions, but you guys were fantastic, and... and you know, expressing your thoughts. And I think we chose really well because we got a really interesting uh, cross-section of opinions on the album as a whole and some interesting viewpoints on it. So, I mean, is there anything that I might have missed that you wanted to make sure you got in before we before we end this monstrous opus? Yes, one. Yes.
1: I'm. Uh, I'm really grateful that you asked me to come on the show this time because, among other things, it allowed me to discover that you can recreate the entire album with demos i've always been curious to know if if any single album could be reconstructed entirely out of demos and it turned out that this could um if you've if you've got certain rarities albums and uh, a couple of other things um you can put together the complete package and it's really interesting to listen to uh, from end to end yeah that's very cool is,
4: is that true of the crossing as well
3: i was gonna say i think it is true of the crossing as well and i, I think-
4: would think so because i have rarities four and it seems like it's like everything and then some
3: yeah there's no doubt that every song that was on the crossing is is also on off al- there's an alternate version of it somewhere that i believe was either a demo or recorded in in some other fashion but yeah that's that's yeah. very true i think those are the only two
2: driving to damascus also
3: oh really okay did
4: not know yeah that. probably yeah i could see that
3: wow so 37
4: right or what well they had the sessions but that was like Rarity Seven, right? They're driving the Damascus sessions.
3: I think I'm not that. Yeah, much no a, I'm not that much of a nerd, Kara. Come on. This oh, is a, all right.
2: You're the precedent.
3: Rarity Seven. What is this? Like Star Trek episodes? We're talking about. <laughs> No, I'm just, I think oh, we I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs> I think you just lost your presidency.
3: <laughs> I have a dry sense of humor, Carol. I'm sorry. I'm i I'm just making a joke.
4: But, no, 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 I know. Just don't lose your youngest cohort, you know.
3: <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. We need we need some youth in this in this uh tribe that we have. But um so so did they do was there a demo version of somebody else? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. I don't know if I've ever heard
2: that. <laughs> I can send it to you. <laughs> yeah,
3: right. Wait, well, you, me... have, you don't have to. It's far from one of my favorite tunes. I was just curious. I wasn't aware that there was one. But, uh, all right. I, I'm, maybe I was at one point point. just forgot. That's what happens with Age Hera.
4: <laughs> but, okay. Uh, yeah, there is. It's Rarity 7. Rarity 7. At. All right.
3: Wow. Have to go back and check that out. All <laughs> right. Well, so good. Well, you know, it's still a good point, Tim, that we can recreate this entire album with demos. And, uh, I guess there are some others that are that way, too. Hopefully we'll get maybe even some more down the road, but you never know. Um, All right, guys. Well, Svein and I will be back for a deep dive episode uh, of this album. And um, in the meantime, thank you guys for listening. Please let us know what you think. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. Go to Facebook and look for the Great Divide uh, podcast page. And that's about it. So, Svein, anything you want to add before we sign off here officially?
2: Uh, we um, we've talked for hours and hours and it the feeling is that we still only scratched the surface of this album and uh we did and uh, we can keep talking for hours and we will so uh, i think this was a great introduction hopefully hopefully it makes sense you're gonna make it all come out in the wash i hope i'll try um and uh yeah i think it was great i thank you all for coming on really appreciate it
3: yeah thank you guys so we'll see. Absolute pleasure.
4: Yeah, it was it was great.
3: Oh, and one Thank thing you. I do want to say before before we leave, because we d- didn't get a really good chance to do this because Jason wasn't with us. But Jason, I didn't get a good introduction for you. Um, Jason uh, Jason Allen is one of the co creators of Inwards Fanzine, and he is a great musician in his own right. And he's got a great new album out called Island Music, or,
5: is Island Music or Island Songs? It's I, I changed it in the last it's fieldwork now. It became fieldwork at the Fieldwork, yes, that's right.
3: I'm sorry, of course Fieldwork. <laughs> I'm thinking of your original title. But uh, yeah uh, Yeah it was. Yeah, it's so Fieldwork is fantastic. Check that out. what's, what's the website, Jason?
5: Uh it's jasonallen.co.uk slash fieldwork. We'll take you to it and it's available as a free download, plug plug. So um fill, fill your boots. Have have a free album. been reading back over your words now i know how it went <clears throat> hell it hurts the end, end the end was hollow bay the pointless and the walk away it's a
3: fantastic album
5: and jason's got a lot of stuff out
3: there actually so we appreciate you on the show jason and kara we really appreciate you and and the the insight that you gave us from your age group and tim it's always a pleasure to talk to you so uh thank you guys
4: oh shucks thank you
3: and we'll see you all next time that's it all right Excellent. we're hanging up now bye guys see you no i'm just kidding <laughs> 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 no, thank you guys really that was I think that was great
2: Crickets. Did I lose you all or what?
4: No, no. I understand what you're saying.
2: <laughs> it's like
4: I a just... dream.
3: We don't want to wake up. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. You know what? You know what? I was talking and I just realized that my uh my mic was muted. <laughs> sorry about that. That's why you're at the crickets. No, I was just gonna say um It yeah. takes a man to admit that he muted himself. I did again, yeah. <laughs>